0: Oh my God! One thing I want to ask though is, uh, so like, you're you're in California. Uh, how like how are the fires in terms of like w- when I was reading about this, like Portland had the most. Um, like like the worst air quality in the world at some point, you know, maybe for like a few days or so. Does mm-hmm. that mean that you're not like
1: like they, they're suggesting that you don't leave the house, or how does that work? Yeah, that's pretty much it. So in the fires, well, let me back up. I moved here August of 2018, mm-hmm. and immediately after I moved here, there was uh, the the campfire out toward Paradise uh, in the Sierras or, or right near the Sierras, which was massive. And that year's air quality resulting from the winds pushing that smoke our way. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. San Francisco had the worst in the world for a week, maybe two. And that is pretty much the advice is to stay indoors. Uh, They'll put out what they, uh, I forget the exact name for it, but essentially um, they tell nobody to even burn a candle in your home to add to you know the the air quality or making it any worse, mm-hmm. um, and and you're advised to stay inside. At that time, everyone was advised to buy N95 grade masks. So oh. just interesting uh, that uh, some some people maybe still had those on hand and uh, came in handy for COVID. But uh, uh, last year we had bad air quality as well. At one point, um, you know, same idea, fires burning. Like where I live is about an hour north of San Francisco. And so last year we had fires all around us. This year it's been the same, you know, one an hour to the north, east, and south. And so it just, yeah, it gets very, you know, it looks as though it's just fog, mm-hmm. but it's smoke. And the one is, thing Is, is then, it still this way now? Like, I assume it's not like red skies anymore. Like, what? what does it look like? Yeah, so right now it's clear where I live, but I can't really vouch for... Other towns, maybe it's still quite bad, but yeah. So about two weeks ago, for a two or three day stretch, it looked as though it was eight p.m. all day long, mm-hmm. and and in my town, the skies were kind of a yellowish green. You know, down in San Francisco, spread all over the news. Obviously, were those orange photos, which was intense. Um, mm-hmm. And the only thing that's been slightly better about it this year. Is that not nearly as many uh, human-made structures have burned, mm-hmm. and so the the smoke, while still bad, is not considered as toxic with all those particles from uh, asbestos and steel and metal and wood. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's you know, if anything, it's been slightly better this year. But uh, we're still very much in the midst of it. You know, the the fire that raged when I first moved here happened in November, and the one i say the one i mean the the multiple ones around here last year were in october so you know to already have had by end of august really bad fires raging mm-hmm. is not good and we still have a couple months probably of waiting this out
0: yeah yeah it just makes me think uh, when you mentioned the masks um you know one one thing that's pretty obvious now is uh uh, the fact that we don't have that manufacturing capacity, right? That is in a technical sense, like people don't think of it as a national security concern, but this obviously is mm-hmm. something that would be part of like a, a broad discussion of uh, national security, right? Um, I understand that, you know, on some level, there's certain things that you don't want to go back to, right? Like if China is the best at what it does in terms of like some elements of manufacturing, You don't have to say as a country, like, okay, we want to compete with China on all these fronts. Like, you could sort of do what you do best, but there needs to be some level of, like, native manufacturing capacity, right? Um, Whether it's, you know, something as as simple as being able to make masks or, you know, like, honestly, like, if if we had, like, an actual uh, World War II situation with uh, the possibility of, like, you know, uh, uh, land strikes against us, let's say, um, do we have the capacity right now to be able to, you know, uh, uh, manufacture the things that we need? You know, I, I'm not even so,
1: so sure about that. Right. Yeah, I agree with you there. And yeah. we've seen this call for, you know, companies doing something totally different to convert their assembly lines overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, back where I grew up in Michigan, you know, Ford and General Motors have been asked to manufacture masks, at least for a time. I don't know if they still are. But uh, yeah, you know, the, and even that all happened quite late and so on and so on, Mm -hmm. you know, by now we, we know the story in terms of how the administration has handled it. So I agree, Uh, you know, you do still need to have some kind of capability to pretty much at the snap of, of the finger, uh, you know, put something in place to help on these things. And you know, as um, tempting as it is, we should probably save like all the
0: additional political stuff for the artifact, for the comments, for all that. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, w- what brought what so what brought upon uh, this conversation was, um, you know, I've been thinking how uh, I grew up. Right, it, it, it interested me when I when I first met you and you said that you grew up religious because it feels like most of the people that that are you know my friends now um, they sort of like never, they, they either were never really religious or they shook it off very quickly, which was not my experience. Um, uh, like I, I know for example, Dan, he's, uh, like I remember reading his memoirs, like that he, that he knew like by the time he was maybe six years old, that religion was bullshit. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and to me, like, it's just incomprehensible to think that at six years old, right. I had, um, and you know th- this this could just be kind of like uh, native differences in you know uh, uh, psychological like inclinations towards believing certain things or or or, or wanting to believe certain things or uh, what have you. Um, but I, I grew up like with uh, religious feeling. I grew up with religion. Period. Um, I grew up with a, a Russian Orthodox uh, church, which has its own kind of interesting features in the sense that, um, like, you know, maybe there's like some element of, well, maybe, maybe we could say that all of it is superstition in the sense that like, you know, let's say like modern American Catholicism, like, obviously you could, you know, point to pretty much anything in in, in that religion as, as a, a superstition of some sort. But, uh, the interesting part with, um, uh, Russian Orthodoxy is, you know you're starting essentially with a uh, mostly peasant population a century ago right mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a peasant country uh, uh very uh, uneducated by modern standards uh um so you're gonna get this interesting combination of uh kind of like native superstitions like i wouldn't call them like it you know it wasn't a pagan country you know a, a century ago but uh, there definitely were things like, like in Russia, we have something called the, called the Domovoy, which means like a house spirit. And this actually goes back to like um, Slavic paganism. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kind of stuck, right? Like uh, I, I guess technically, like if you speak to an Orthodox uh, primate, which is uh, um, kind of like, you know, like, like a, a, an elder, uh, he, you know, he would tell you, that, no you're not supposed to believe these kinds of things but you know the russian population does right mm-hmm. um and, and it's kind of like very weirdly enmeshed in religion in the same way that you know like early christianity just took on uh, uh so many of the, of the pagan myths surrounding it, around right? like to make christianity and, and some of the christmas more palatable right let's just uh, let's just celebrate it at the end of the year when we have all these other you know pagan festivities coming and then eventually it's just going to you know meld into one Um, But, you know, so I I grew up with with a lot of that. I grew up with uh, 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 a lot of what we would, I guess, term outside of the religion itself, like these kinds of like superstitious fears. Uh, And I just want to see how our upbringings compare in that regard, because we've never actually talked about it in any kind of depth. And I figured, you know, if we talk about it, might as well make a show out of it. And if we make a Mm -hmm. show out of it, we need to have an art component. And what better art component than possibly it maybe is is the best book in the Bible, uh, Ecclesiastes. So before we get to like the the art itself, uh, why don't you like tell us a little bit about Uh, your upbringing and how you ultimately just kind of um, disconnected from from religion.
1: Sure. So uh, similar to what you said, I can't imagine at six having already made these kind of realizations. So if if, uh, that's the case for Dan, then I would probably call that quite unique. And I also would be interested to hear from him at some point how much religion was uh you know part of the fabric of his family and their history because i know for me that was the main component for a very long time is simply that my grandparents and as far as i know great-grandparents were quite religious um i think even my my great-grandfather on my father's side was a missionary to Mm -hmm. india and and then maybe one other uh, family member of of my grandfather's had been perhaps his his brother or sister. I forget all those details, but uh, you know, very very involved uh, to the tune of of orienting an entire life mm-hmm. and life's work around it. And then uh, you know that obviously passed down just through the family line. And so um, you know, my parents both grew up in in those environments and remained that way themselves. And then my sister and I growing up in their household, it was just part of the fabric of life. So, um, you know, probably from the age of, I would guess, well, maybe birth uh, on, but certainly kindergarten and beyond when I was beginning to grow and develop and learn, I was in church two to three times a week, um, you know, all the way from that age up until I graduated high school. And then when I did go to college, I ended up attending a, a Christian college Uh, just a small liberal arts school in Illinois. And I had gone back and forth on, you know, whether to do that or to go to a larger university or a a secular college and, uh, you know, decided that I would go to Wheaton. And uh, there were a few other factors to it and reasons. But uh, so that, you know, then left me still in the, the Christian sphere and expanding that worldview. I think when I went to college, I thought, okay, you know, this is when I will study harder and drill down further on some of the core tenets of this belief system and, and really try to uh, justify it or, or ingrain it, you know, in my life even further and realize that there can be some kind of, uh, you know, more intellectual grounding to it and heft to it. And it'll, it'll go beyond, uh, you know, mere feeling or mere spirituality. Mm -hmm. if you will. And so, uh, for the first couple of years, that was probably the case. And, you know, we were required to take, um, biblical studies courses as part of the curriculum. And then also required to be in, you know, what, what was called chapel at school, but essentially a church service, uh, you know, three times a week. And then as Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then usually go to actual church on Sunday too. So, um, you know, being in that environment, around a a good number of intelligent peers and and everything else did serve that purpose for a a time. But I think, you know, as time went on, maybe my junior and senior year, I just became more and more focused on what am I going to do after this? You know, what does life look like? And am I preparing myself well enough for it? And so just kind of my studies and, uh, you know, I played tennis at, at college and stuff. So these other things just took more of my focus and more of a front seat. And I think I found myself becoming just a little bit more, uh, you know, lax about the whole thing. And then after I graduated and, you know, got my first job and just kind of entered work life and all these things, um, I was realizing I hadn't drilled down particularly hard on the other side, you know, and had kind of just taken all these arguments I had heard, Uh, at at face value. And so I just started seeking out secular works and, you know, more focused Mm -hmm. on science and, and philosophy and, and realizing that, you know, a lot of the Christian faith to me, um, you know, had, had been this, just this, uh, this pattern in my life and something that I always did. And the more I questioned it, the, the more I just felt that, it seems clear that there are other explanations for what we see in the world. And uh, a lot of the, you know, the core tenets tend not to hold up. And, um, so it was a gradual thing, you know, probably from age 23 to 25 in particular, just a lot of reading and contemplating. And I, mm-hmm. I think I just realized one day that I had sort of phased out and, uh, it's been that way since. So
0: like, did you, did you grow up with like favorite, um, like religious texts or religious prayers or, or, um, just, uh, uh, like, like, like what, what part of like the religious culture, um, affected you in some way? Like what, what, uh, like, is, is there anything like to this day that affects you or like, how did that look like when you were growing up?
1: Yeah. So there were, I, I read the Bible a lot and, Mm -hmm you know even uh, put a lot of effort into memorizing long passages of it and mm. and the entire structure of the bible and even you know some historical context around it and then outside of that you know i don't think in my teen years i was reading anything that would be categorized by like a you know a, a religious scholar as something deeply scholarly but things like C.S. Lewis or the Lord of the Rings trilogy from Tolkien. Um, and and then there were like a, a fair number of kind of uh, pop proselytizer type personalities, right? So mm-hmm. I don't know if these names mean anything to you, but someone like a Rob Bell or a Donald Miller uh, wrote these books that became like really popular in, in the evangelical Christian world because they were more uh, like edgy and mm-hmm. kind of like giving examples of people living life as christians but but kind of attempting to deal with some of the the more challenging social issues and and these kind of things and mm-hmm. uh, of course they were considered like heretics uh, by a lot of people you know for even yeah. engaging with these questions so stuff like that was influential for a while and um man i'm trying to trying to think i'm looking at my bookshelf here just to see if there was anything else um yeah well thomas merton a little bit of mm-hmm. Thomas Merton. Um, New Seeds of Contemplation was uh, was a book of his, and then another book called um, The Intellectual Life, which is by a French monk named uh, A.G. Sertillanges, and that was another one I kind of used to justify this idea that maybe I could live a you know a creative or intellectual life, and uh, you know do that within the context of Christianity
0: yeah i i i noticed that that that's a pretty um you know that pattern is is somewhat similar to mine in the sense that you know as you're sort of coming of age uh and you you kind of see this in the macro like with some of the books that you listed like if these are sort of you know uh popular explanations of uh explorations of religion and they're meant to be somewhat edgy right the only reason why that's the case is like in the modern world like religion just sort of has to like engage in all these compromises right um it has to compromise with itself and it has to compromise Mm -hmm. with society because um you know there are certain things like that you can't stand for and that you can't allow right um like even even like basic issues now that seem kind of like obvious to most christians like like most christians now if you were to sort of like stop them on on the street and ask them so you know do you think that you know a a good jew would go to hell you know they would say no i think you know all good people you know go to heaven right which is like you know that's clear that's obviously not biblical um and now but even like even the pope right even the pope is saying that people of you know various faiths or even people of no faiths uh, that, um, are otherwise good people, uh, they, uh, can make it into heaven because, you know, just a a purely like, you know, logical conundrum of, well, if you think about it, it's just a purely statistical argument in the sense that if you're born, you know, anywhere outside of a typical Christian nation, you're simply not going to be Christian. You're going to be the religion of whoever, you know, whatever, you know, your, your uh, locale is. Um, and, you know, like, and then you, you would have to justify yourself. Well, you know, On the one hand like you know i I believe that god is just and then on the other hand god is essentially allowing these people to be born in these situations that are you know usually impoverished situations to begin with and on top of that they go to hell because of the circumstances of their religious upbringing right like no normal saint person wants to believe that um and you, you, you you sort of notice that like Uh, you start making these adjustments and you start making these like arguments in in your own head like so you know how can I live the life that I want to live but also you know make it spiritually satisfying or, or make it somehow respectful of my like specific like religious upbringing and the way that I would do that with myself is like by the time I was like maybe like 14 15 years old I already knew enough about, you know, the world and science that, um, much of what's in the Bible was not, uh, you know, was simply wrong. And my way out of that was like, by the time I was maybe like 15, I was, I was reading a lot, um, uh, of like religious philosophy and specifically to like justify, right. To justify belief. Like what are good philosophical yeah. arguments, right? It, it was always like for a very specific motivation. The motivation was how can I justify a personal belief, right? How can I, um, you know, like, like what, what are the best arguments for God? And I remember there was this, this website that was kind of popular when I was growing up called like God and org. And I would like read the, the the articles all the time. I would read about uh, the sciences, uh, uh, from, from that perspective, of course, like, you know, uh. Almost everything on that website, I'm not sure if it still exists, uh, I, I would now, you know, realize it is, is, uh, is bullshit. And, um, you know, like even the, f- the philosophical arguments, it, it seems to me as if there haven't been any real philosophical arguments for God's existence that haven't already been addressed at some point like centuries ago, right? Um, I feel like uh, all, the, all the rebuttals have more or less been made. I don't think there is too much new stuff to deal with after uh david hume uh, although there are like some fine-tuning arguments and like i remember when i was a kid the fine-tuning argument was like my last you know was my last emotional refuge well back then it was like my last intellectual refuge right but really it was an emotional yeah. refuge because of of the way that the argument is structured and for people that might not know the, the fine-tuning argument for god's existence goes something like you know look at the universe um, look at how uh, balanced it is. Look at how uh, uh, s- specifically tailored it is for your personal existence, right? Like had things been even just a little bit different, right? Uh, let, let's say that heat in the universe was like distributed differently. You change like, or, or even just like, you know, the, the, the kinds of, you know, single-celled organisms that we had at the beginning, let's say those were a little bit different. Um, you could say that uh-huh. maybe eventually we would still get to the point of intelligent life. And in fact, I think that that is like if you're starting with a, a, a single cell organisms, I I, I think it's pretty um, uh, I think it's pretty certain that eventually you will get intelligence simply because like, you know, just uh, from a purely like mechanistic perspective, uh, intelligence emerges just uh, 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 it, 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 at the point where that is the thing that is just you know competitive genetically speaking right um so uh, mm-hmm. event- right. and because and because intelligence j- just has such massive benefits in terms of you know uh, that competitive edge you would expect that over a long enough span of time uh, a planet like the earth perhaps not every single planet but a planet like the earth would probably uh, emerge with some f- form of life so I-, I i would look at the fine-tuning argument and i would say hey look um uh, you know, the universe seems to be so tailored for me. And uh, uh, I, I, I remember like th- this sound, like such a knockout argument for me. And I remember I was like on some like uh, music message board. And I remember like arguing, uh, there was like a, an off topic uh, portion of the site, I guess. And I, I, I remember um, uh, arguing with somebody about fine tuning and the guy was like, Okay, well, you know, uh, this is what you believe about fine tuning. But, you know, if what you're saying is true, right, that um, had things been different, uh, you know, uh, you wouldn't be around like, that's the answer, right? Like, had things been different, Alex, like, You wouldn't be around to have this discussion. Like, even if you believe that the universe keeps like, you know, expanding and crunching, let's say you accept big bang, big crunch, and this keeps happening, you know, infinitely, right? Over and over and over again. Well, it could be that you had a trillion universes before this one that had no life at all because it wasn't fine tuned for the specific kind of carbon life that we're talking about. That is us. And now after a trillion times, guess what? You are now conscious here. You're allowed to talk about it since now finally you exist and you are making the Mm -hmm. mistake that, that, you know, this is somehow special, that this is the miracle when in fact, you know, everything else was just as special. It just wasn't conscious. Right. Um, And I remember Mm when, 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 when it was put to me in that way, I was like, I was, I was like 16 years old. I was like, holy shit. Like he's right. Like. You know, I I, I and I, I made the decision like, okay, like I have to like, I can't ignore this. And I remember for like the next like month, I was like sort of practicing and training myself to like not believe in God. Like when religion would come up, I, I would train myself to be like dismissive of it. I would train myself to like, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, reject the arguments. And I, Then I remember at some point like making these like secular arguments against religious people like a month into this like change. And I was thinking like, fuck, like what the fuck am I doing? Uh, you know, as much as one could say you were a religious person and now it's done, you know, I think I've sort of been through that, but I I think the process is, is akin to like, you know, forms of addiction, right? Where people say, you know, uh, uh, you're never truly cured of addiction. You're just like a recovering alcoholic, even if you haven't, you know, uh, if even if, even even if you haven't drunk alcohol in like fifty years, right? You're still recovering in the sense that you know you could easily fall back in those patterns. So, you know, maybe uh, I think it's more accurate to say that uh, I am a recovering religious person. I have like tons of like you know existential angst. I have tons of like guilt. I'm not sure to what degree it comes from religion. Um, It could just be as simple as I'm a person that is just psychologically primed to believe certain things. I am like, I'm not sure Mm -hmm. if I'd call myself superstitious, but I do things that might not be totally rational. Like I spend like maybe, you know, a hundred dollars a month on various like fucking nutritional supplements. I do research them. I do like enjoy reading this kind of stuff. And uh, I I think there's definitely evidence for them, but um, uh, I I think it's also like, you know, it does strike me sometimes, like when I'm fucking sitting with, like you know, my mushroom pow- powders or my or like a, a, a little. Here, everybody took it this morning. A little like metal, metal tilled, like it's this thick, big, big because it's this it has to be this full. Like when I'm sitting around this kind of shit, like I just start <laughs> thinking, like h- how much of this is just like my inclination to. Want to believe certain things to rationalize certain things because you know I and I'm sure you could sort of vouch for this for yourself. Like I am a master of rationalization. I have to be very aware of this. I could I could trick myself into all sorts of garbage. Like I almost tricked myself into voting for Biden this this year. So I have to be very aware of 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 uh you know the, the kinds of uh. Um, Things are in my life. And it makes me wonder like, was was that like the effect of religion, or is that simply no, Alex, this is just kind of who you are interpersonally, psychologically, this is your blueprint. Um, and and you sort of uh, went with it, right? So, you know, maybe that explains why Dan is the way that he is, uh, and why it, it took me 10 years after him, like well into my teenage years to switch that. Um, and like I, I just want to ask you like if you have any responses to that, and also like whether um you have any comments? Because, like, you're, you know, you're, you're. Uh, I think you're 30 now, right? Or, or close to yep. it. Um. So, uh, you know, it's been like only five years since you, uh, sort of like really left
1: religion. Sure, it's a good question, and I spend time every once in a while trying to ask those questions of myself and break it down. And I, I think that, um, you know, one thing that is coming to mind right now is. Um, just maybe the the sense of duty in life, uh, this this kind of uh, both like the, the Protestant work ethic, but also the um, the tendency to treat yourself as sinful mm-hmm. uh, can expand, even if you're secular, into simply a tendency to always tell yourself you're coming up short of something and mm-hmm. it can be very nebulous there, there doesn't even have to be a specific goal it can be and i i do feel this and i will communicate this to myself via self-talk uh, fairly often just you know i like you're just being so shitty right now uh like right. You're, you're not you're not working hard enough you're not trying hard yeah. enough uh you're coming up you know well short of it in all these different categories of life And then in my more clear moments, if I like sit down and sometimes I'll even force myself to write just like journal entry type things about this versus like a a poem or something more serious and just kind of like put down on a piece of paper what my life is actually about right now and what I've Mm -hmm. done and what I still aim to do. And um, I even had a moment kind of like this yesterday. I was reorganizing some notes uh, that I've taken on different books and uh, videos and, and whatever over the past year or two and looking back at some goals I had written down, you know, that in that time frame, and realizing that like, I've accomplished some of them and some of them I haven't, but you know, even like a week or two ago, I was in this like mindset where I was like convinced everything was just hot garbage in my life uh, mm-hmm. as far as like my ambitions and what I really want to do. And then I looked at this piece of paper. I was like, wow, I actually have done a couple of those things and like not really stopped to give myself any credit for it uh, and, and be like positive and try to reinforce that I can build on on those things going forward, which I think is a carryover for sure from um, You know from that that religious mindset and kind of the you know, the, the, the masochistic nature mm-hmm. That it can take on uh, in its more intense form so For sure, that's one thing. I don't view that entirely as a negative, though, because, you know, my mindset a lot of the time is if I don't push myself to do certain things, nobody else is going to do that. So um, maybe if in a religious context, it's pursuit of righteousness or, you know, or a higher moral ground or whatever you want to Mm -hmm. call it, where it's misdirected and people become convinced that they have a corner on these things. Because, you know, some multiple thousands year old patchwork book is telling them so mm-hmm. um, it, it can still pervade your life from that standpoint. So I think that's one. Um, and, and I do also have like these these times where no matter how well positioned I think I am or justified in certain, uh, you know, worldviews or beliefs I have now you know, I'll, I'll still like wonder if it's really right or if this really is okay. Um, you know, I mean, even like I'm in a new room from the last time uh, that we did one of these, because I moved and now I, you know, I moved in with my girlfriend. And so like I had been married before in my early twenties and then got divorced uh, about a year and a half ago where you, I think it finalized about a year ago now. And so like the thought of, um, you know, like meeting someone, fall, someone new, falling in love with them and then, and then like cohabitating with them is still ingrained as a no-no, right? From like my early days. And so, Oh, you, so I,
0: you still feel that specifically?
1: Yeah. Like, but I know that it's perfectly fine, right? Yeah. Like it, my, my new self, my rational self is just like, this is just me living life with mm-hmm. someone that I enjoy being with. Uh, it's the exact same thing as being married to somebody, except there's not the legal documentation and a couple of rings and a ceremony or whatever. But there mm-hmm. is this like t- this tiny little piece back there that's still like. Uh, but uh, but is that right? Like, is this an okay thing to do? Because for so long, you're you know you're told that it's not right. It's just not yeah. how you operate and, and run your life according to these tenets. So. Um, those things do flare up from time to time, no, no question. And and maybe you know what we could do is pivot to something you said to me in our show notes, where you've wondered if that framework, though, um, you sublimated it into a drive toward the arts. Oh and, yeah, yeah, you know this uh, this kind of place taking of the arts uh, and, yeah. and working toward that rather than religion. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. And um, also, you know, whether it's part of this or uh, maybe a separate answer, one thing I do find myself falling into not particularly often or intensely, but still slightly from time to time. And maybe this feeds into some of the political things we might talk about later. But I do think that even once you extract yourself from religion and, and, become, you know, fairly certain that at minimum, we can't know there's a God and it's, it's likely there isn't one period. There's still a, a search for it. And it, it does create a void. Um, I think even in particular, when you think about Christianity, the role of Jesus and the person of Jesus, and we still maybe look for Messiahs, you know, in life. So a, a person, maybe in specific or at minimum, a, some kind of cause or group that you can Mm -hmm. be part of that takes the place of that because it is very comforting as a Mm -hmm. human, right. To have some kind of greater thing than yourself or a leader who can lead Mm -hmm. you and then to be part of that troop. And uh, I do think that's a dangerous thing Mm -hmm. often overall. So you you have to be cognizant of it, but I, I think it's an easy thing to do. A lot of people seem to do that with, you know, with political figures anymore, but yeah,
0: um, uh, th- this reminds me of, uh, uh, so like when, when I um, uh, also like around the time that I was 16, I became a Marxist and that actually mm-hmm. overlapped with uh, being a Christian, right? So for a few months after I became a Marxist, I was still like for like half a year, a, a Christian and I would like, you know, I would get into arguments with like other communists like uh, about that because obviously most communists are are, are, are not uh, religious mm-hmm. at all. Um But I remember also like so like after uh, I left religion and I was still in this kind of like Marxist mindset, uh, whenever I would see kind of like, I guess, like cartoon representations of like my favorite Marxist figures or whatever, I would definitely get very very strong god vibes right like Mm -hmm. it felt extremely similar i remember one i remember one in particular there was this like one dumb fucking comic like book thing where like uh lenin like lenin came back to like fight with stalin and he was like shooting a fucking ray out of his hands at him <laughs> uh and i and then i remember like like i i, I literally started rooting and like before even turning the pages i started rooting in my mind like yeah just fucking get him uh because and, and, part, and part of that was you know partly was because like you know that that was still i guess for my phase where i thought there was actually a very Big difference between Lenin and Stalin. When like now mm-hmm. I realize, like you know, Lenin simply you know started the infrastructure and started doing the things that Stalin essentially perfected, mm-hmm. um, which is just kind of like weird because like you think about it, like how like you know there, there was for so long this like you know movement, you know there was the Leninist Trotskyist movement, like the, they are like the orthodox Marxists, and Stalin was like the aberration. When like you know if had things had things been a little different, and Trotsky would have won out. Uh, Russia would not have like like a Stalin like figure would have been Trotsky right um so that seems inevitable but uh, yeah I, I remember i remember having these like religious kind of uh feelings and i mean uh, honestly like uh the heights of my religious feelings when i was a kid right and the examples would be like uh i remember when i was like 8 i was very adamant that i was going to like when i you know when i But it's kind of funny when I think about it now, because in my mind, it was when I turn 30, I'm going to become a monk. And I guess in my Mm -hmm. head, I Mm -hmm. wanted to uh, uh, turn 30 because uh, I wanted to like. Uh, uh, have a, a time in my life where I could go out and drink and do drugs and have sex and, you know, like then, then do the, you know, St. Augustine shit of, you know, uh, na- now I could finally settle down, right? Like mm-hmm. after, after, after living, living this kind of life. It's time um, to get serious now. Yeah. 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 And, and that's the thing. That's always the trap, right? Like you, you always think that, that uh, if, if you're ever doing something, you're, you feel like you shouldn't be doing, like you sort of trick yourself into thinking like, well, that's not my real life yet. My real life will start. <laughs> right. right. And it's like some other like arbitrary kind of uh, uh point. But uh, so like, that was like a height of like religious feeling like i yeah i want to like leave all this shit and become a monk another one was and this was from the show notes that i just remembered um uh like i remember i you know i i I grew up like around like tons of like uh hasidic jews right in Mm -hmm. in my neighborhood and i remember just like looking at them and just being very kind of envious right In, in, in the sense that uh you know my family i guess was was religious but it was religious in the sense that you know uh russian families are religious or american families are, are 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 religious right it's kind of like this generic religiosity that might play out in like oh yeah they're going to church oh yeah they're praying but whenever i would look at hasidic jews like it seemed far more serious than that right yeah. um it, it it seemed like they were actually working on some sort of uh, like lifelong project, and they had this kind of purpose. I just sort of like um, idealized them as like you know their lives must be fucking perfect. like what do they have to worry about? They go to their religious schools. They go to their, um, you know, they, they, and that's the thing. Like I even knew this as a kid, right? So like when people say that their religious life is really the hard life, well, you know, uh, not to an eight year old me, right? That was an escape. And to what degrees is, is it an escape for everybody that is really religious and, and, and um, uh, not, not to get off track, but like with, with those two examples being like height of religious feeling, you know, if if I work on something and it turns out really well, like like a you know like a, a great paragraph or like you know whatever, like it's a similar feeling, right? If you're working on a book yes. and there, there's like a you merge with like a great chapter that you've just spent like weeks trying to perfect, it's the same feeling. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the the feeling now that I have this purpose of like leaving something behind, right? That this is what I have to go for. Uh, it's the same feeling. And, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, we mentioned, uh, Shelley Kagan, um, uh, an art, the first artifact, uh, when he was arguing with, uh, William Lane Craig on the kind of like origins of morality, like, can you have an objective morality without God? And Craig said yes. And, and Shelley said no, you, you don't need God. The way that he phrased it was, well, you know, if there's a god out there and he tells you that oh yes i am god i am the supreme being and i'm telling you that objectively this is what you must do you have to follow you know the ten commandments uh, you could just as easily say so what to that directive then you can't to any other directive what difference does it make whether you replace god's directive with, like, accountability towards, I don't know, society, or accountability yeah. towards, like, a future generation. If you th- if you really believe that, if you make a great work of art, that a future generation can not only learn from, but, like, you know, um, make better in some way, right? Um, uh, what difference does it make whether God tells you to do it, or whether society, you know, tells you to deal with, like, uh, to to say that objectively, like like it, you still have this infinite regression of so what, so what, so what. You could say so what to absolutely any question in the world, whether or not it's God telling you. If God tells you, well, if you don't follow my rule, you go to hell. Well, what if you say so what to that? Like th- there uh-huh. is no, there's always the possibility of that infinite regress, and um, you know, so so uh uh like in terms of sublimation, like yeah, like uh, I uh, I I really don't see that big of a difference between my religious life and my present life, because my convictions about what I'm doing now are just as powerful as they were about, you know, God about, you know, whatever, like, um, and, and, you know, uh, and maybe, maybe that's kind of the point, right? When I said earlier about like, what if psychologically, this is simply my predilection, right? Uh, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe that is the answer. Maybe some people are just <sighs> born with it, or maybe it's Maybelline. Yeah, <laughs> right.
1: Well, yeah, I, I can agree with you on that last point you just made where the feelings are very similar. It even harkens back a little bit to artifact number one with Maslow, right? And and these peak experiences and, uh, you know, the, the effort to self-actualize. And I think that some people do find that with religion and taking, the, you know, things as seriously as possible and the piety of of the practice of that religion as intensely as they can. And they, uh, who am I to say that they don't feel that way, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and wholly themselves, uh, but also wholly connected to something larger than themselves at the same time. You know, it, it very much could be possible. Uh, Of course, throughout history, because most of history has been religious, we also have predominantly examples of great thinkers and achievers and, and artists and scientists and whatever who were religious and felt they were doing this in order to grasp some greater, deeper truth about that very figure that they worshiped all the time anyway. Um, and so the, you know, do the ends justify the means? I, I don't know. It You know, at a certain point, it's like, well, Newton came up with the theories he did, like whether he thought it was just uncovering a tiny little sliver of God's grandeur or yeah, there's probably nothing out there, but this seems to be going on. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the result kind of ends up being the same, but I think now, you know, what one of the big things that led me away from religion was uh, the frustration with the God of the gaps, right? And Mm -hmm. it's like, well, anything we don't know, just fill it in with God. And I'm like, well, first of all, you could fill it in with the universe. It means Mm -hmm. exactly the same thing. But also I get frustrated because and, and you notice this in the arts too, and, and this might tie into our discussion in, in a broader sense, maybe not, but this feeling that people seem to have that we've like finished evolving mm-hmm. and we've finished progressing and making yes. discoveries and all this stuff. It's like, what are you talking about? We've got a few thousand years at most of recorded history where human intelligence reached a point that we could actually record this stuff, then reflect on it, then progress it. And we're very early days yet, uh, you know, in the midst of that. And so my sincere hope, and I do think it will happen over time, is that, you know, you and I are living in, th- you know, the future Stone Age, um, mm-hmm. you know, for for generations a long way down the road. And and I suppose, you know, maybe part of the drive to create is to be one of those links in the chain where it's people continue to look yep. back and say, oh, this book that Sheremet wrote, you know, that... Um, that to this day is still something that influences people and, and and how we kind of perceive our existence. But um, at any rate, you know, I think that to, to get like, so intricately involved in the further study of religions and uh, you know, thing like roadmaps for human life that we've had for a very long time now, it also to me just there's such a law of diminishing returns past a certain point because i get way more excited by Mm -hmm. ambiguity and the fact that we don't know Mm -hmm. and saying so that creates hopefully many new avenues Mm -hmm. for people to to continue to find out these things and just because we don't know it today doesn't mean it's unknowable in terms of just like health right like I think what you just
0: said kind of cuts bo- both ways in the sense that, so like you know, um, you don't feel compelled to like go out there and like g- go and like fucking argue with like you know people that are sort of religious, like you know what's wrong with you? C- can't you know? Can't you tell that this is just a God of the Gaps argument? Like you said to it yourself, it's just boring. There's so many more exciting things right now. I remember yeah. again, like when I was 16 and made the decision, okay, I have to become uh, uh, an atheist, or I guess technically an agnostic uh um uh when, when i said that i was going to be an atheist like i did spend like i'd say three to six months like to cement that i guess really arguing hardcore like about pretty much nothing but religion for a few months and mm-hmm. and, and politics i guess like I, w- I would argue about two things god and communism. <laughs> um uh, <laughs> uh, god and communism and and Uh, but you know, uh, then like soon after that, like I, I came across, uh, you know, County Cullen, I came across, uh, Kazuo Shiguru's Remains of the Day. And I was like, holy shit. Like, I know this is a great novel. I have to figure out why I have to figure out why. And that, that, that was immediately such a more satisfying and difficult question. Cause like, yeah, okay. So if, if David Hume more or less settled kind of like most of the, I guess, not purely scientific arguments in relation to God, w- like, w- what am I going to be like doing, like talking about this nonsense? Right. Um, and, and, you know, you, you see this in yourself as well, which is why like, you know, uh, Dan has said this before, but like one of the reasons why like people like Richard Dawkins, like, rub so many people the wrong way, including me, is, you know, here this is a guy that used to, you know, actually write books about science. And now he says, Mm -hmm. I'm going to write books about why God is, uh, you know, why God doesn't exist. And it's like, uh, okay, like, like, can't you leave that for like everybody that doesn't know how to do science? Can't you leave that for everybody that doesn't know you know, that, that can't make actual like long-term contributions to society. Mm-hmm. And and if you're, a, right. if you're, if you're a healthy person, right. And, and you, you, and you, and you forego your religion and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm over it. Right. You will move on to other things. If you are someone that has been so damaged by religion and your religious upbringing that you can't help, but think about it for the rest of your life. Even as you call yourself an atheist, you know, Th- that is not a, a pursuit that can be resolved intellectually right that is right. a that is you know something for psychotherapy that is something that is no longer an intellectual question right that is a and that's the thing like it, it has this it has this veneer of you know well, I'm the intellectual, I'm the one that's making these assessments. You know I'm the one that has you know show that in fact, God doesn't exist, but you know the impetus, like who cares if the conclusion is is, is intellectual? if the impetus from the beginning to end completely suffused with it is just emotional. Right. And, and, and that's the thing that's going to, you know, uh, entrap you. It's going to entrap you to, you know, uh, make you a formal limited person. And it's also going to entrap you like in the intellectual side of things. It's going to trap you into making like bad arguments because you just, you know, uh, uh, the, the emotion just
1: just got the best of you in that sense. Sure. Yeah. yeah the, the, you know, switch over to a militant atheist and and proselytizing for such Mm -hmm. you know it can can be troublesome uh, for sure and so yeah i agree you know when you see uh someone like dawkins who you know has a platform to be able to communicate on science and eventually deviates from that it it does get frustrating um i might feel a, a a little more conflicted about those roles than than you do because i have wondered like religion has had the the first mover advantage for so long in terms of evangelizing and proselytizing and people are susceptible to that obviously it's just advertising right and and we know we're all weak you know some more than others but everybody can be susceptible to that and so i've wondered before i'm like well even though eventually this stuff does start rubbing me the wrong way and i think it's a bit of overkill like maybe we do need somebody like that to just kind of take up the cause for agnosticism or just even considering religion to not be something you need to have in your life, period, um, to to live well, to to at least put it out there so that it's a fair fight in a way because, you know, religion has these massive institutions, massive funding, all that kind of stuff uh, behind it. And uh, so, I, I don't know. I feel like from time to time, I'm still glad that you know, someone like a Dawkins or a, a Hitchens or whoever has just gone into the ring and, and, and you know, unboxed some rounds so mm-hmm. that at, at least there are some punches thrown back the other way in the context of maybe this is this Dawkins uh, line we're on for the moment. want to bring up an example of someone like Lauren Isley who, you know, maybe we'll do a show on or touch on more heavily in future uh, episodes. But when you look at someone like him, where, uh, you know, it, it's his arguments are more elegant and more subtle in a way for um, for science and for that more rational view of life, simply because he he did what he could do best and wrote. You know, he was a, a unique blend of artist and scientist with you know prodigious capability in both fields. I know that you know he's not as revered maybe as a, a scientist and didn't necessarily have you know huge breakthrough discoveries kind of thing but he you know he was uh, still prominent in that community and then you know starting with darwin's century he went ahead and and kind of had some writings that were more scientifically inclined but over time he you know veered toward this personal essay style and and incorporating
0: uh, which 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 he was criticized for all the time right like it sounds it sounds
1: crazy now right but you know, people are like, why don't you just write about science? Right. Stick to the science, which, you know, he, he still was writing about science, but just in a a unique way and and in a way that only he could. So that was, you know, perhaps his greatest service, uh, you know, to the world. Um, But, you know, he's also someone that continues to stand out to me for uh, his spiritual questionings. Right. And, and so in the midst of all of this, especially with a, a book like the invisible pyramid where he takes it, a bit of, um, not necessarily a devil's advocate, but, but kind of a, uh, you know, nervous onlookers stance toward technology and science and the progress made. And, you know, he's writing these things kind of in light of the, uh, you know, incredible destruction that we were able to reap on one another across the world in the 20th century. And at the end of it, just wondering, you know, what, what good is this really doing? And is this the best we can do? Um, you know have we lost sight of something deeper or, or perhaps more spiritual or uh, you know I don't have any pull quotes right in this moment um, to, to refer to but at any rate you know he's an example I think of someone that pretty much achieved the, the the best that he could and it's serving both functions right artists can look to the work for something and get an awful lot of mileage out of it mm-hmm. and scientists can also still look at his work and even if it's not you know breakthrough or cutting edge uh, to this day he still was a good scientist yeah mm-hmm. and a good and an excellent communicator right so yeah. that that f- served a, a really important function i think for quite some time over the past uh, few years i had thought that if if we are able to eventually you know, just kind of continue chipping away at secularization of you know of subsequent generations of people who put less and less, uh, you know, credence in the, the classic religions that have stuck around for a long time now that will, you know, we'll totally move on from that and, uh, and kind of have this just more, you know, more, more open, humanistic, uh, free thinking society. And, and, and probably still that will be true, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in a larger majority than it is today and certainly has been in the past, but, um, I do. The, the more that you just kind of look at the state of the world and human nature, I think that the you know these are things that that will hold on tightly. Uh, there's something I'm sure that some other scholars or or writers, you know, maybe have have spoken about this perhaps quite well and eloquently. But there's something in our in our nature, you know, that wants to uh, to hold on to these things. And so I, I think it does become a question of the placement of the commitments and convictions and. How uh, you know how productive or how harmful they might be to to oneself and to other people and the broader society as time goes by. So I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to watch it, uh, you know, play out because um, with the the proliferation of both information but misinformation now, um, you know, with with the internet and so much connectivity, uh, there's there's a lot of potential you know pitfalls there too so
0: so like you, you 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 said you had this uh discussion with with your friend like well i mean why don't why don't you rehash that like what is the like what what, mm-hmm. was the, what
1: was the conflict there sure so yeah this this is a friend not a super close friend but um someone that i i used to uh you know know a little bit better when i still live in the chicago area um and you know very intelligent person uh you know like i said in the show notes to you he's Close to completing a doctorate at University of Chicago, and um, I think was you know kind of an all-star student at Wheaton and that kind of thing. And he's he's a year or two older than I am. Is he still um, but, still religious? Uh, yeah, as far as I know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were talking. Uh, this might have been like summer of twenty nineteen, even uh, or maybe the fall, but. He he just touched base with me just as a friend to say like hey I know you're going through this difficult uh, you know personal thing right now with um, you know the ending of your of my prior relationship and I just wonder how you're doing and if you want to catch up sometime so I appreciated that and we set up uh, a phone call and mostly talked of other things but you know toward the end I was just like well you know on top of all of this uh, you know I don't know if you know this but I've you know, been non-religious now for some time. And so I'm like, some, some of the advice he was giving and ways he was framing things were in that context, I think, still assuming that I, um, you know, was, was valuing that or, or that it was, you know, my core belief system. And so I was just trying to help him understand, you know, like I appreciate it. I know it's well-meaning, but, uh, you know, it's, it's just a bit irrelevant at this point for these reasons. And so it, it was like a bit of a surprise to him because again, we weren't super close. So like he didn't necessarily know this about me um and so like he he kind of pivoted and i brought up a couple like even just minor points things we've already touched on you know god of the gaps or infinite regress or uh, you know so on and so on and just some of the scientific arguments against religion he's like well you know let me stop you there because i think it's important for you to realize that i think the way he phrased it was uh you know, religion has has never been about its explanatory power for the natural world and for what goes on in our world and the universe at large. It's always been much more geared toward a, you know, a, a system of personhood and a framework by which people can live their lives and, and live a good life. And, and that's how, you know, more how you should be phrasing it. And then he did carry on with something that you and I agree on. And I did agree with him in that moment, which was, you know, you're still living your life according to some of these tenets, whether you realize it or not, you know, like there will be things that you've carried forward and will will continue to do so that you might even deny. But I think when you would like reflect in another five to 10 years time, you'd still be able to see the, the trace uh, remains, you know, the, the half-life of mm-hmm. Christianity, you know, uh, like in your life. And, and I didn't, disagree with him on that but i was just like well i have to disagree with you you know we didn't get into it heavily but especially after the call was was over i was just like you know I, that seems like yet again you know even for a super capable intelligent person like him you know, just like an out because i'm like of course the the, the bible and all these other you know sacred texts have it taken a huge piece uh, of explanatory power you know, and, and at bare minimum, humanity's always treated them as such. So, you know, that's, this is very problematic for me. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, there's so many inconsistencies and I'm like, you know, if you're going to just go ahead and say, well, you know, that whole book of Genesis that like kicks off the entire Bible and says how the universe came to be. No, you know, it's, it's not really what it's about. Um, it's about these other things. And I'm like, well, it's, you know, it's just piecemeal yet again, trying to to grasp it relevance uh, still you know for for the uh, Bible and, and for the, the system of thinking so
0: it, it just makes me wonder though um, like with the uh, maybe, maybe I wouldn't frame uh, things in quite the way that he said it but you know I, I think there is something to the idea that uh, the explanatory element of religion is in some respects a kind of uh, afterthought and justification like you know for most people right you start and, and you know this is true of thinking in general whether we're talking about uh, religious or secular even people in the sciences like i mean uh, a kuhn in in the structure of scientific revolutions like talks about essentially the same thing um you start with an emotional position first and you build an mm-hmm. edifice around the these emotions right this is true of everybody and everything as far as i'm concerned now that doesn't mean that you will necessarily, you know, always end up with like, you know, an irrational set of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, beliefs or, or whatever. But uh, since that impetus is there, um, you then have to wonder like, well, wh- why does it seem like, you know, human beings who are so kind of like, fine-tuned for intelligence um, why do we like uh, have this kind of like emotional bias and like you know they sort of you know did experiments on this and if you take away the emotional um, uh, aspect of thinking right the emotional side of thinking uh, you actually also collapse and completely lose the intellectual side if you eliminate emotions and and, and that kind of impetus from the beginning uh, you find yourself in a situation where for example you can't decide between like, you know, uh, a set of like, you know, um evenly distributed or evenly weighted uh, elements, right? Let's say like you're trying to like adjudicate whether something is uh, right or wrong and you have like some evidence here and some evidence there. You know, mm-hmm. if you eliminate uh your like, em- like if you could go into your brain and like shut off like the emotional valve in some way, you're not going to be able to weigh those options anymore, um, and, uh, you, you, see all the time, like in the way that people like do, you know, all, all, all kinds of like ad hoc reasoning, uh, uh that emotion just, it always plays a, a very kind of central role. Like, you know, people have, people have to be like, um, honest with this, with themselves, like how willing are you to budge from positions that you like? I definitely catch myself all the time, you know, uh, 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 doing things that are more uh, emotional than not and they seem so intellectual like uh, from from the kind of like uh, from a different vantage point but I know that's not actually what's happening. Religion was in fact progressive right just like capitalism I I still believe that in America capitalism could be progressive because you know at minimum we haven't even yet gotten to the stage of like you know norway or whatever like we we, we're not even a social democratic regime yet much less you know a truly progressive capitalist regime so same thing with religion like nietzsche said it himself he was like um religious wars are actually this is i think this is in gay science religious wars are a positive development in human history not a negative one and this is someone that hated religion and nonetheless like he he was rational about Mm -hmm. this he said Religious wars are a positive development for humanity because with a religious war you have proof that Human beings are taking ideas Seriously, right now you don't you don't have to simply fight about material interests You could say there is something big here that we could latch onto it could jealous Maybe it could uh, you know uh,
1: create a war, but we are taking these abstractions seriously Yeah, so I I think a lot of what you say there is is on point and interesting. Um your your comment from Nietzsche in particular I hadn't heard before. Um so I I think that's pretty fascinating. But um yeah, I, I suppose my like from from times past, the interwoven nature of religion as explanatory plus religion as moral code, uh it is difficult to have any kind of real problem with. Uh, you know, quote unquote, mm. because people people just didn't know better. We didn't have enough of a you know of a, a communal knowledge set to be able to really handle these things yet. And of course, any time that someone either came up with a theory, uh, at minimum, or or then made an effort to really expand the bounds of knowledge, you know, it was met with um, with, with all kinds of persecution, which. You know, as a modern person, it is frustrating mm-hmm. when you think back to what these people would have gone through simply by asking questions and and coming up with a couple other ideas. Um, you know, it, it can even get maddening to think about. I think in the modern day, where that still goes on on mass, is where I get you know quite frustrated about it and say, "Well, okay, even if you're going to tell me that, according to you know the the most uh, rigorous thinking possible and whatever institutions or circles of thought you know religion is as explanatory power is officially on the out and we're all just here studying it for these other virtues and these other reasons um, okay fine but like you you can't you cannot necessarily though in in the real world separate that because it has impact on huge numbers of, of human lives and you know, and the course of events that happen. Um, and, and most of, of the world, of course, is not, you know, scholars sitting around a table deciding it's, well, you know, it's okay to just, uh, at this point, discard explanatory power. That's fine. We'll, uh, we'll cast it out. Yeah. But what we're keeping, though, is the moral code. Uh, and so let's figure out how to uh, refine that and make it work. Um, it's just not how most people are approaching it. It's, it's definitely a, you know, it's, it's a double-double, uh, you know, deal in terms of how that goes. So, uh, it just to me, it, it seemed like kind of disingenuous and just a way to like keep the machine rolling, yeah, uh, and and like still not really deal with yeah. real world outcomes, uh, of what goes on. So, yeah, yeah, that,
0: that, yeah, that, that seems like to be the, yeah, that seems to be the emotional, uh, impetus for what your friend told you right like so that's just you know again like Uh this is how this is how thoughts begin this is how cogitation begins um and again like you know like religion like like i think the best way it's like to think of it is nation states are objectively better than tribes right that's just a fact right and the reason why it's a fact is what you can leverage in a nation state in terms of like human power human capital is just much better and higher and impressive and stronger you could do much more right with that kind of leverage but how can you leverage the power of a nation state before you can materially get to a nation state right the answer is religion right like before before you could have a formal nation state you at least could have a religion Um, well, one thing I'll say about what, what we just talked about, like all that by way of introduction, uh, it might seem kind of excessive, uh, to some people, I guess, but, uh, you know, it's what we do first of all and second of all, it is actually relevant in the sense that, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes, um, like in terms of like sublimation, I think, I think it applies because like, God very much feels like an afterthought in Ecclesiastes like it, it definitely feels like it was tacked on i had the sense of this like when i first read it when i reread it then when i was actually doing research for uh f- for this uh, it turns out that uh many of the kind of like more explicit mentions of god they are they they were actually tacked in by like you know religious scholars um uh, after the book was uh uh written i guess in a more kind of secular light because Uh um for so many parts of the book uh and maybe you know i'm not sure if you if you have the same sense but for many parts of the book it feels as if god is kind of appears as a kind of uh, a needless explanation right you Uh have you you have um uh this this emphasis on labor right like you have to commit to doing good work whatever that is for the rest of your life um and as that happens you know, you you wonder maybe sometimes, like you know, is it all for naught? Uh, and God sort of appears like this kind of like uh, you know Deus ex machina, uh, 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 kind of like, well, yeah, it was all worth it because you know, and there's God. Um, yeah. and, and but you know, there are some answers in the book that are more satisfying than that, like it, 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 it like answers that 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 sort of make God redundant. Um, I'm not sure if you want to give any impressions of the book first, or maybe we could just get into reading uh, the entirety of, of, of the first chapter so that any uh, viewers who might not have ever read this thing could at least get a sense of what it's like, right? And why I would be interested in this book and why, you know, it, it's an actual example of, of good writing.
1: Sure. So I think you sum up a couple important things well right there i agree from the first time i ever read ecclesiastes uh, in any kind of meaningful way probably as a teenager it does stick out um you know from from the rest of the bible mostly for just that the, the attitude and the sentiments expressed i think it might be helpful for some people to know that it does appear in these four consecutive books in the Old Testament, that kind of uh, act as a little bit of a bridge, in my opinion, thematically, where um, you kind of you have like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy—all these like really, you know, kind of like both explanatory and then also like law-giving books that kick off the Old Testament. It kind of keeps moving. Uh, in that vein, there's a lot of, uh, you know, history of the Jewish people. There's some perspective from different people thrown in. But then you get to Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And that four pack right there is a much more literary uh, turn that, that the Old Testament takes. And um, in Psalms and Proverbs, much more so than Ecclesiastes, God is treated, uh, you know, much more as a personal God. Um, someone that is close by you someone that is watching over you someone that should be obeyed and feared but also can give love and receive love this kind of thing and then you hit ecclesiastes and and it just takes this really interesting turn where it's it's existential and like you said god feels tacked on and the the writer is just asking these questions more from a, a pure thought standpoint almost of Uh, just, you know, what, what is going on? Or I I should even say, I mean, questions are sort of asked both directly and indirectly throughout, but it's a little bit more um, declamatory with all these, you know, all this vanity and vexation of spirit and and the, you know, any listeners and watchers will see that very uh, immediately when you uh, read the first chapter. But at any rate, it just, uh, it it comes with this interesting moment then song of songs or song of Solomon um, right after it is, is like directed toward a, human lover Mm -hmm. um some people extrapolate that to to be some kind of love between the author and god but i think it's pretty clear it's more human based so anyway um it just comes at an interesting turn and then after that the old testament gets into more like prophetic books that start to hint at the coming of the messiah and these kind of things so um it's a it's a standout within a bridge of, of books that kind of stand out anyway and uh and really kind of interesting read unto itself
0: and it was a uh, um you know uh, traditionally it was uh, said that this was written by uh, king solomon right that's not um that's not accepted anymore interestingly no. in in my edition i, I have a king james uh, bible that's kind of like it's a I uh i guess uh, a literary bible in the sense that um, you know, there's tons of glosses, there's there's tons of explanatory information. Uh, from what I recall, I, I think it just assumes that, uh, Solomon was the writer and just kind of takes that, takes that for granted. But, uh, that, you know, that part has been rejected. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, when you're reading it, you sort of understand why, you know, like if you're trying to establish a tradition, well, why would you say that Solomon is the one that uh, wrote this book, right? Well, it, you know, it fits into it fits into the themes of Solomon as a wise king and also an extremely wealthy king, right? And he talks mm-hmm. about uh, uh, the the speaker talks about his you know uh, acquiring of uh, of wealth and and uh, how that was just kind of you know fruitless in a sense, and uh, also wisdom uh, being uh, fruitless in another sense, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, like I said, I I just want to read the first um, uh, uh, chapter here so that people get a sense of of what this book is actually like. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh. But the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north, it whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor man cannot utter it the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing the thing that hath been it is that which shall be and that which is done is that which shall be done and there is no new thing under the sun is there anything whereof it may be said see this is new it hath been already of old time which was before us there is no remembrance of former things Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given me to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done un- under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, "Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem." Yeah, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also vexation of spirit, for in much wisdom. Is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow, and that is how it ends. Um, so, uh, just uh, just like f- uh, I guess preliminary uh, impressions, um, yeah, you, know, you, you start getting these kinds of like initial tensions, like near the end, right? He he he's saying that uh uh not only is labor vanity the creation of works but so is uh so is wisdom right so is wealth uh you know but as you point that out well if he believes that wisdom is is vanity and in a sense even perhaps like a, a kind of folly if, if if overdone what is what is he doing exactly imparting this if all is vanity including labor why are you imparting this book Right, Um, you know, what is the point of engaging in such if, if you believe that it's it's ultimately going going to uh, come to nothing, Um, and and uh, uh, you know, just just this idea of just kind of like poo pooing wisdom, um, uh, it makes you wonder like. Is you know is this is this exactly like where God is supposed to be tagged in? Like, is this supposed to be a comment on you know human wisdom is somehow insufficient, but God's wisdom is sort of uh, uh, eternal? Like, what exactly uh, is being said there? Um, I'm not sure if you have any responses to like, the overall chapter or anything that I, I just said.
1: Yeah. So it, our thoughts. When we were exchanging notes, I think we're fairly similar on this. And, and that was on upon rereading it, you know, and I'm sure we both uh, read it a few times prepping for this. So each time I would reread it, that does stand out as this paradox where even if you're going to say that uh, everything in life is vanity and it's meaningless and even wisdom falls into that category and labor falls into that category. Well, the author here is laboring to write things down that would be presumably passed on as wisdom so it's it's almost a little bit funny even in the sense but uh, that is one of the other main questions then that arises is okay so is he just uh, considering that whatever level of wisdom he has attained is what's meaningless and and that no human can can get to a point where they've gained enough wisdom for it to be meaningful um or or is even god's wisdom you know any kind of wisdom Uh, just, just fruitless in the end. And it's, it's interesting that the author would even make these kinds of statements because, you know, I, I suppose when I was young and, and reading the Bible and even to this day, if I were to read it, I would be assuming that I am, you know, it's the word of God, right? So anything that I'm, that I'm reading should be a portion of God's, God's spoken wisdom unto people and therefore, you know, if I'm going to make myself a follower of this particular set of beliefs and these words in this scripture, that it it is meaningful. So it, again, like you said, it sets up these interesting tensions and, and paradoxes. Um, just another, like, because we're going to be examining this also just as, you know, the quality of the writing and an artwork, those first several verses in particular, uh, like verses three through seven stood out to me as um, kind of like Robinson Jeffers-esque mm-hmm. A little bit um where there's like these grand sweeping statements about uh the earth and the sun and nature you know coming and going it ariseth it hasteth the place it arose it whirleth it returneth unto its circuits all the rivers run into the sea yet the sea is not full like it i don't know it just has this like very uh, grand kind of posturing about it and uh, it, it, is, it is beautiful language, you know.
0: In, in, so. in, in contrast, like specifically, when, when you said uh, Robinson Jeffers-esque, I didn't just take it in terms of like the language, although like the language is, you know, is, is Jeffers-esque. Uh, but also like in terms of the content, like this is mm-hmm. being set up in contrast to how minuscule people are, right? And, you right. know, a constant theme throughout the, the poetry of Robinson Jeffers is you know, we are kind of like the, you know, these like uh, b- bits of nothingness, um, right. you know, in this like far, you know, wider uh, matrix. And not only bits of nothingness, but also ones that have like, you know, all these preoccupations, all these like uh, subjective feelings and desires that ultimately don't matter. Like in, in his uh, a poem, uh, Joy is Not Great. Where, mm-hmm. You know, he talks about, uh, uh, you know, Sorrow, he talks about happiness and he says like we could sort of, you know, uh, perhaps like adjudicate which one of these things is better, but they're not really great in and of themselves, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, joy is nice and sorrow isn't all that good, but peace is what's really great. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, labor is what's really great. Um. Uh. The, the 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 fact that the the planet and the universe endures with or without you is an example of greatness. Um. So so uh uh. You know. When, uh, I'm not sure if like if you made the connection or or if you had any other reasons for calling it esque
1: That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So I. You know. Obviously, in my comments there a minute ago, I I was speaking to the language directly, but uh, yes, the arguments that are built and the sentiments expressed. Um, absolutely. You know, that's, it gave me this, the same feeling uh, in line of thought after, you know, those initial feelings as reading quite a bit of Jeffers work over time on those yeah. same themes and ideas. And it's even worth noting. I mean, Jeffers uh, grew up religious as well from what I mm-hmm. recall of his biography. So he, he may well have been influenced by something like this. Yeah.
0: And, and it's just interesting how like some of the early lines, like, they really do kind of like structurally and thematically prefigure what, uh, you know, what's going to come. Um, Mm -hmm. like for example, uh, in, in, uh, verse seven, uh, all the rivers, um, no, uh, verse eight, all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Um, you could interpret that in, in different ways, but I I think the way that is sort of most, um, uh, kind of like relevant to what comes later in the book is you, know, you, you could, you could work, you could like engage in all of these like uh, human works uh, un, uh, un, until death, but um, can, you know, can, can you really be satisfied with the outcome? Is, is there ever going to be a time when you say enough, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is enough supposed to come just like is. it, it, it is the dem- is the demarcation supposed to come like with death like is is that the the boundary right like when you die yeah. that that's enough right and until then you work and work and work until you cannot uh, you take in as much as you can into your ear you take in as much you, as you can into your eye like in our case of course like it's you know it's it's engaging in, in with music or you know with art with uh you know with, with writing um, for somebody else it might be something else something else but uh, there, there's this constantly the, the sense of whatever you do, it will ultimately not be enough, right? And uh, I, mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting and open question uh, as to how the book might define enough and how we, you know, would define enough today. Um, how can you define uh, enough philosophically? You know, is it, uh, is it true as, as Shelley uh, Kagan argues that, um, you know, you don't really have options in life, and options are simply a a, a bullshit excuse to sort of uh, 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 live an easier life, right? It is is enough, truly demarcated by death. Um, and you know th- that that's something that the author uh, returns to uh, again and again, and it is always like ambiguous, right? There isn't ever truly an answer given, right? Which which honestly, uh, in uh, I think in the way that this book pans out it's probably uh, uh
1: all f- all for the best you know in some senses mm-hmm. yeah the the lack of resolution by the end well we'll we'll talk about uh the tacked on way in which you know, some other writers attempted to kind of resolve all of this at the very end of of the book but uh, yeah the the open-ended nature of it and uh the the, the prodding and question asking mm-hmm. is uh again it is also a unique treatment in the bible uh, to not give uh you know complete answers and and have god be that complete answer essentially every time so it does set up for a continued build on some of the this ambiguity but these same themes as we go along so do we want to jump on to some additional thoughts and, and yeah, any of the um, excerpts we highlighted
0: um, maybe not in the first book, but, but like uh, the uh, uh, first chapter. But in the second chapter, I, I don't have any highlighted uh, uh, lines. But um, what I found interesting in the second chapter is so, like in the second chapter, this is where the let's call him the Solomon character, uh, mm-hmm. kind of you know. So he he sets you know the first chapter. He sort of sets things up by saying that hey, you know, I, I engage in all this work, I procured so much wealth. I you know did so many things right i I created physical objects and all vanity in the second chapter he actually starts to to go over specifically what he did to reach these conclusions right and which struck me as interesting is you know when he starts to detail uh the things that he engaged in uh they didn't strike me as very um uh you know like in no sense is uh, enduring i guess in the modern sense uh and it made me wonder like it, is he skeptical of uh, you know the endurance of like human objects and human ideas and human labor simply because he you know perhaps engaged in in, in the wrong kind of you know set of actions like he, he talks about, for example, the acquisition of wealth. We know we we could, you know, we don't have to argue about this, right? The acquisi- acquisition of wealth, in and of itself, you know, uh, uh, especially if it doesn't lead to anything uh, deep, like th- that, is a you know a, a, a kind of like a, a folly, right? That that is the wrong mm-hmm. pursuit in almost all scenarios. Um, but then he he starts to talk about what we might still broadly call the arts but back then was absolutely intertwined with the arts it was art right so he talks about constructing you know massive homes right he right. talks about you know the construction of uh, of uh, temples i think at some point he he talks about uh you know getting all of these like uh, perhaps well-known popular singers into one room and they're all, you know, they're all singing together. If one of his labors was like, again, you know, let's assume the King Solomon character. If one of his labors in fact was, I'm going to sort of, you know, uh, engage in this kind of, you know, biblical wisdom tradition and I'm going to write this book and this is what I will impart to the world, right? This is my, this is what I'm communicating. Um, It seems like, you know, uh, it, it sort of stood the test of time when, in fact uh what he was doing during
1: his life it wasn't really firm to begin with I, yeah i know exactly what you mean and so that absolutely stood out as well i think we both mentioned something about this you know in our notes that we were exchanging where the irony of the whole thing is that he did build something that lasted which is this writing and uh-huh. so uh you know whether he was in any way aware of that and, and some kind of like great self satirist before there was such a thing who, uh, I, I think we probably have to say that wasn't the case. And he was just out in the world with, you know, immeasurable wealth and power kind of trying to see, can I put any of this to, to good use and to productive use that uh, will bring me some kind of satisfaction? You know, he's, he doesn't even speak really of, unless I, I'm wrong, you know, correct me, but anything where he's talking about this being for like society or the greater good he's he's literally just like yeah it's almost like self-satisfaction right um yeah, it's almost just, like boredom right yeah exactly he's just kind of dart tossing his wealth and his mm-hmm. power and influence at like could this could this make me happy could this bring me satisfaction what about that and and none of them really do according to him um and so yeah the the, the funny thing being that we're able to, to kind of be here today, 2000 years later or whatever, breaking this down and getting something out of it in the end. But uh, I, I certainly agree. You know, it's, it's kind of this uh, age old problem of like, what can you do during your life that really has some kind of impact and lasting meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also worth saying uh, we're maybe going to touch on this in a little bit here anyway. So I'll bring it up now, like an awful lot of, at least from what I remember, uh, and especially in like less, um, what would you say, like less theologically uh, dense and intense sermons over time that you hear mm-hmm. in church will pull, uh, like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes get pulled from all the time mm-hmm. in terms of like wisdom dropping to the masses uh, that mm-hmm. are attending, right? And so you, you know, I can't even tell you how many times over the years I would hear verses from this book even ones we've already read that are then summed up by a preacher to be said, so guys, you know, obviously in the end do everything for God, because if you just become a business person or a doctor or whatever, and you go out there and try your very best and do as well as you possibly can, it's still not going to really mean anything unless you have Jesus in your heart or, or whatever, you know, however they were like trying to package it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but never, never one time was there a discussion of, you know, is he in any way being disingenuous here? Is he pursuing things that actually do have true worth? Um, you know, what, what does that, what would that look like if, if he did? And can we do that? So, uh, yeah, it, it sets up for uh, some more things that will come here later in the book. But
0: yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's interesting because, you know, it, it's not as if that the authors uh, of the book at the time could have known this. But, you know, here we are thousands of, of years later, we have a more kind of comprehensive understanding of what art is. Right. Right. Uh, and, and um, you know, we could say that, hey, you know, he's sort of like uh, talking about wisdom in this kind of, you know, somewhat negative light but we also have chapter 2 and chapter 2 tells us sort it gives us clues as to why he might feel this way that that he did essentially just you know uh, toss darts right he he uses wealth for the sake of um self-satisfaction right he you know mm-hmm. he he engaged in these like more limited forms of art uh for personal reasons as opposed to really leaving something behind um, and, and chapter two, like in that sense, like it gives you a clue for so much else, right? Like it, it explain, it explains, it also explains, you know, like we, we said it, it's ambiguous in terms of, well, you know, what does enough mean? And also what does wisdom mean? Are we talking about, you know, wisdom is folly period. Is it specifically human wisdom? Is it, is it like a, a more kind of transcendental wisdom that is also folly? Because, you know, if you're the Solomon character here. And you don't, you know, you, you can't see past your, your age, right? Like back then, um, uh, c- the construction of these homes or these temples or whatever, that was perhaps the extent of art. Uh, and if you're saying that wisdom is folly in some senses, um, all you're saying is I'm a human being, right, of my specific era. These are the limbs of what I know. Whatever wisdom that I'll impart is going to be uh, uh, in some way tentative, right? Someone else is going to have to adjudicate some of these things. And in chapter two, like we're able to adjudicate things here that no writer, right, uh, 2,000, 2,500 years ago would have been able to adjudicate.
1: Right. Yeah, I I agree with all of that. And certainly we can't expect the Solomon character uh, author necessarily to have totally transcended his time and his surrounds to say, I'm about to bring you great poetry that will last, you know, well beyond me. This is the one thing that you can put wisdom toward that will have value. I mean, you know, the the amount of insight that would have been needed at that time just pretty much would have been impossible to have. Um, so it can't be too hard on, on him from that standpoint, but, um, you know, certainly, maybe that intuition of still deciding to write all of this down, you know, did help him out. And, um, and you're right, you know, we can, now that we've had so much continued progress in the arts, we're able to sit here today and, and talk about this in that context. And, you know, hopefully you'd say that another one to 2000 years from now, there might be people, you know, watching our video here that are you know talking about, uh, certain insights we had and then things we missed and, and it, yeah. it just continues on in that way. So um, yeah, definitely agree. I do want to read just a couple quick verses from chapter two and then maybe we can move on because in addition to some of the tension setting that we talked about in chapter one, right within a few lines of each other in chapter two, there are some contradictions that also set up this feeling of uncertainty and whether we can really in some ways even trust the author about this whole wisdom folly conundrum. So uh, it, it says here, chapter 2, verse 13 Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. And he continues on The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then I said in my heart, As it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool. So again, you know, within a few lines, he goes from, well, I saw that wisdom was better than folly to well, maybe not because the same, the same end comes to everyone yeah and i think you and i would would agree more with uh with the first statement than the latter one it's certainly better to be wise and try to make something of that wisdom but just interesting it, yeah it's it's, it's contradictions
0: yeah like like if you look at a uh, v- verse 15 it ends with um you know like what happens to the fool so it happens even to me and why was i then more wise then i said in mm-hmm. my heart that this also is vanity. I get the sense that if you would have like omitted verse 16, uh, for there is, which is kind of like the explanation of that final line in verse uh, 15, that that would have given it a much more kind of open-ended feeling of, um, you know, the thought that, uh, well, if it happens to him and it happens to me also, how am I more wise that that is also a vain thought, right? Because the vanity there in thinking that, As it happeneth to me, it happeneth to the fool. Uh, The vanity there is in in, in thinking, well, simply because I have this additional wisdom, I can either avoid the worst of life or I can, uh, um, you know, or I deserve to somehow avoid. or Or God should have, like, provided me some kind of out right uh that he and, and mm-hmm. you know that is obviously a very vain thought, right that is the vanity, but you know instead there's this kind of you know explanation after the fact, for there's no more remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, um seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten uh and and uh seventeen uh is also interesting, therefore, I hated life because the work <laughs> that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all this vanity and vexations of spirit. And, you know, if you truly do believe that nothing that you're doing is in fact a a, a true benefit to society, you know, well, undertaking that labor then by definition is grievous to you, right? Like it's hurting you, right? It, it, It means that you're expending energy unnecessarily, right? And that's enough. Here, you're undertaking things that you don't even know why you're doing it. And if you truly believe that there is, there is nothing after me in some regards, um, then, you know, why not? Then why shouldn't you think that way?
1: hmm Right. And, and even verse 18, as he continues on, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. I don't know how you interpreted that, but for, for my part, it's kind of this concern about leaving a legacy uh, to a, a potential fool who might ruin anything you've even worked to build and i i was also just thinking again of some of the things we talked about in um, artifact number one where during your lifetime whatever thing you are capable of doing you must build and you must work on it but you really can't know what's going to come next in your own life let alone the next lives and generations after you and whether Anyone ever will, or or when they will arrive to build upon whatever you worked on, but we still do it anyway. Uh, but here he's expressing this int- or this uh, this feeling of, you know, why even bother? Because I have no guarantees that mm-hmm. it's not really working out for me. I'm not deriving much value and worth from it, and. I might even leave it to someone who would be stupider than me so so why do it at all again just just a really interesting sentiment for the bible as well these yeah. you know i hated life i there's nowhere else in the whole bible that i recall where a line like that happens so
0: yeah yeah uh, if you have anything else to say about chapter two go ahead um no, that's I ha- a- I, yeah ha- i have the lines from three we, we we sort of i think we highlighted different lines Mm -hmm. I highlighted actually everything from uh, 9 to 22. So I'm going to read that out uh, as well. Um, uh, Let's see. So what profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Wait, what am I? Is this it? Oh, no, yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah okay. that's it. So that's I have it. seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor it is the gift of god i know that whatsoever god doeth it shall be forever nothing can be put it nothing can be put to it nor anything taken from it and god doeth it that men should fear before him that which hath been is now that which is to be hath already been and god requireth that which is past and moreover i saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was there And the place of righteousness that iniquity was there i said in mine heart god shall judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time um there for every purpose and for every work i said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that god might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts for that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts even one thing befalleth them as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast for all his vanity. And go unto one place. All are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward from the earth? Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works for that is his portion for who shall bring him to see what shall be after him. And uh, I mean, when I read this, the reason why I wanted to read the uh, entire uh, set of passages here is um, uh, like all those feelings that God was sort of tacked on. uh, I think this really comes to the fore uh, at at this point, right? Um, Here he has like all the good reasons for, Sort of enjoying your labor for making that your kind of like life's goal, but um, despite that, there you know, like uh, he still feels the need to sort of drag in God. And you know, my my question is why? Right? Like, there's there's this kind of like um, you know, it, it's it, it's almost as if like God is like a stand-in as a concept for other things. Like, you know, there, there's this like reassurance that that God will. Correct the world's evils. Like if not now, then, you know, maybe like during some kind of abstract later Um, but Mm -hmm. there's also this like, you know He's also like assuming that there's this like terrestrial Obligation for man to enjoy the fruits of his labor And if in fact there is a terrestrial obligation to enjoy the fruit of your labor What is the point of bringing? God into the equation, right? Like it's, 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 it's it's sort of like, you know, uh, uh, God, you know, God, God is a very kind of useful stepping stone for certain things, perhaps, but, you know, even by the time that we get to the Bible here, right, even here, this is supposed to be, you know, a religious text, we have a secular explanation for why life is the way that it is and for what you need to get out of life. Right. And, and that secular explanation, it just strikes me as sufficient, but by, you know, by the very words, like within the passages, like you don't, you don't need to, to, to bring in or to, in this case, sort of like sneak in. Cause that's literally what did happen. Right. You don't need yeah. to sneak in the concept of God because you have all these stand-ins uh, for God that you've already enumerated in your own book. <laughs> right. You know?
1: Yeah. So it, it is, it, it is really the first, you know, major time here in the entire book that we start to get this just, you know, uh, pin dropping of, uh, you know, we'll put God in there, um, st- stick it in there that that can maybe, uh, and who knows, I mean, maybe it was to give some comfort to, you know, to, to readers of that time. If, you know, we've talked about how, certain parts uh later writers came back and put this concept of god in or maybe uh accentuated it but you have to assume at least a few times he would have mentioned god and put it in there so you're just wondering is this to to pander a little bit is it to give people a little bit of hope in the midst of this otherwise bleak set of set of uh tenets that he's outlining here and 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 why why do that. I mean, if you're going to have the bulk of the book by far really be about other things, it is still a curious choice. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, anything else, uh, from, from chapter three?
1: No, that's it from chapter three. I I mean, other than just the, you started in the middle of it, the very beginning verses of that chapter are some of the most famous oh that, yeah that's why i skipped them from the sorry. whole book so yeah so yeah was, sorry you know, sorry yeah
0: the, the most famous verses i skipped because it's like you know you've probably already heard them oh well, whatever let's let's read them you know what well, I, he, I, we're just going to read the whole book aren't we we're going we're to uh, read the oh, whole
1: fucking book. man that, that that'd be beastly i don't know but uh, i was just going to say you know if any uh, folks watching you know are have already read the book or are going to read it you're certain to recognize some of those lines because they've been directly yep. pulled and, and uh, you know, re reappropriated by other artworks.
0: And just quickly, like, you know, it's stuff like a time to kill and a time to heal, mm-hmm. a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And that's like uh, kind of like the first half. And yeah, like uh, it, it may be kind of unfair, but, you know, I've, I've, I've heard it so many times that I just didn't feel the need to rehash that. No. Um, it's, it's
1: pretty cliche at this point. Yeah, I would say, you know, that that whole part has descended into cliche as it's been just constantly remixed over time. But anyway, they're well-known verses that pretty much everybody has heard in their life in some way. Mm. You want to move on to chapter five?
0: Yeah, I have have a couple of lines. Uh, I mean, do you want to start with what you have written down and maybe we could sort of take it from
1: there? Sure. So chapter five, verse two, we've got another Ecclesiastes classic. I'll read it quick. Be not rash with thy mouth and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. So that one there is a typical colloquial wisdom thing passed around. And I mean, that verse is again, one of the more quoted I can ever remember probably from my childhood and almost a justification in a way by Christian thinkers for some of the things we talked about earlier, a little bit of that God of the gaps thing Mm
0: -hmm.
1: where it's just, if you don't know, then just don't talk about anything. Don't even, Mm -hmm. don't even attempt just God's up there. He has it under control. He has it figured out. You don't whatever wisdom you might attain is lesser. So just, just don't talk. And uh I think, you know, as, as time goes by, more and more people would say, you have to disagree with that. Then uh, the in verse 8 and verse 19, those are the other two main ones I highlighted here. There's this really odd sort of advice giving. So in verse, chapter 5, verse 8, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter for he that is higher than the highest regardeth and there be higher than they. So in, in a subtle way, first of all, don't be surprised at this marvel, not at the matter, which I think we could all probably say that that's that's generally true and no one's too, uh, you know, too surprised that these things happen, but a little bit of an insinuation to just shrug it off and whoever's upon up on on high, will go ahead and take care of this. And some of those sentiments are echoed again later on in the book, which I think is, is just odd advice, but maybe not for a King at that time who considers themselves to have the capacity to, to rule and to judge, Mm -hmm. or if they can't, God will kind of thing. But for the, the common person, You know, we, we all, I think have this sense that whether we exercise it or not, uh, that you can see corruption, you can see these things happen and you really should be calling it out when you see it rather than just assuming it'll get resolved by someone else.
0: Yeah. uh, Uh, in, in the vicinity of these lines, uh, when we talked about, um, uh, Uh, Let me just read uh, both of them then, Uh, because I had an additional line at the top of what you had. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Uh, The follow-up is, it's kind of like explanatory. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. Um, and you know, like w- when we think about like how you know how Judaism must have emerged, right? Um, uh, like w- one of the, one of the traditions was probably like a little bit of a of a Greek tradition was kind of like added in after the fact. And you know, it, 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 th- this this sentiment strikes me as very Greek. Like when people think of like the classic, like you know, Greek admonition uh, to like uh, uh, know thyself. Um, Most people seem to interpret it as like, you know, uh, you have to like uh, really get to know your mind. You have to know like where you sort of like, you know, uh, 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 like who you are, perhaps where you fit in the world. But the original admonition is much more uh, a kind of like caution against hubris, right? Like Uh know thyself in the sense that know who you are uh with the knowledge that there is such a thing as you know the gods right uh, know who you are because you are not the gods and here it's the same kind of um uh, uh, admonition um uh, later later in the chapter uh, uh the reason why i guess i wrote these down is it's it's like it's interesting because you sort of see how some of the thoughts that writers from 2500 years ago uh they might have had thoughts that were just kind of uh they're, they're 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 getting at an idea but they might not necessarily know why that idea is or they might not be able to fully explain it and then after, you know afterwards we're, we're able to do better uh, in that front so uh when uh it starts to discuss wealth uh starting from verse 10 chapter 5 um he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver nor he that loveth abundance with increase this is also vanity when goods increase they are increased that eat them and what good is there to the owners thereof saving the beholding of them with their eyes the sleep of a laboring man is sweet whether he eat little or much but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep there is a sore evil which i have seen under the sun namely Riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. Um, You know, a a fairly scary set of lines. Uh, It it sort of reminds me of um, Uh this, this, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There's always this, you know, with wealth, there's always going to be this, like, fear of loss. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this one, like, really nice anthology of Stoic writing, like, across the years. You know, it starts with, like, the classical Stoics, but um, uh, it moves into, like, the more kind of, like, modern day. And they had a passage from Schopenhauer that very much reminded me of this idea of, of of loss right like if you have something you're always going to uh, uh, you know fear loss and you're all you're also going to feel like you know nothing is ever enough right when what it says like he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver right he that loves abundance mm-hmm. will increase so uh, Schopenhauer in, in the wisdom of life this is this is the way that he frames it right so he gives an actual explanation for what an Ecclesiastes is sort of like, just kind of hinted at. um, Mm -hmm. And his his explanation for this phenomenon is as as follows. Um, There is no absolute or definite amount of wealth which will satisfy a man. The amount is always relative, that is to say, just so much as will maintain the proportion between what he wants and what he gets. For to measure a man's happiness, by what he gets and not also by what he expects to get is as futile as to try and express a fraction, which shall have a numerator, but no denominator. Right. It's a, it's a great, it's a great passage. Um, and yeah, he, he, mm-hmm. he you know, he's able to explain thousands of years after the fact, what has always been known, right? People have always suspected that. You see this in, you know, in Buddhism, right? There's always a sense that, you know, enough is never enough. Uh, and, 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 you know, here, here's the explanation for for why that is. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that definitely those lines stand out as, as you go along. And this is someone who is you speaking from experience with this thing as well, having attained great wealth and still considering it folly. And so, yeah, the, the Schopenhauer quote is, is excellent. Definitely does a great job of summing up those sentiments and in a way it also probably ties back to these bigger questions of just what constitutes wisdom in general Mm -hmm. and, and whether, uh, you know, a, a wealthy person could be wise enough to know when they've reached "quote enough," um, and if that's even possible for somebody, or if they will just inevitably continue on and perpetuate this cycle and remain unhappy, mm-hmm. or unfulfilled, or, or unwise, or however you want to put it, because uh, they ha- they don't have the capacity to to do this reflection mm-hmm. and to think about it. Yeah, so.
0: Um, let's see. Uh, do, do you have anything for a chapter six? Cause I, I have a, I don't have anything for that.
1: No, we can skip over chapter six.
0: What, what about seven? If you have anything there. Um, otherwise I, I have some things I want to discuss.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the main thing I wanted to highlight from chapter seven just, uh, is, is a piece, one verse that I consider, really good writing in general. It's probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite metaphor from the entire book. So chapter seven, verse six, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. So it, I, I just really enjoyed that image. It's stark and kind of interesting. I I'm guessing there might be some kind of ancient Hebrew, uh, you know, a bit of like imagery there, the crackling Mm -hmm. of thorns under a pot. I I just thought that was an interesting image and phrase. And then to equate that to the, the laughter of a fool just stood out to me as a a nice little bit of writing there.
0: Yeah. uh, In my, uh, in my, I have like a kind of like, you know, one of these, like uh, it's like a study Bible with like tons of uh, notes. Uh Um, Uh, they're just saying that crackling is a literary version of the word sound, which just, uh, it's not very helpful. I mean, obviously, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to say sound of thorns, you would say crackling, right? Cause it's more, uh, I guess, uh, expressive and descriptive. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Oh, oh, what else I have here um, for, for seven? Oh, like, 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 uh, you know, th- there is also like that, that there's like a return of some of the mystery and ambiguity here, Um, uh, all things have I seen, uh, verse 15, uh, all things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself over wise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? Um, and I, I just find that very interesting because, well, first of all, there's this kind of, uh, well, it, it's it's the Bible, right? And the Bible is admonishing you to like not be righteous. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we talked about this in artifact number one. Like uh, there is always this. Um, desire to be like very self-righteous uh and and one thing that i wanted to talk about like earlier when we were discussing like our kind of religious uh, uh, br- uh bringings uh kind of uh, in general um uh you know i i get the sense that a lot of my sort of psychological predilections uh, for religion came from like a desire for you know gatekeeping essentially right like it it, it felt good to be christian didn't it uh, it mm-hmm. felt good to be a gatekeeper in that regard. In the same way that, honestly, like it, it feels good to be like a gatekeeper of the arts. It feels good, uh, uh, thinking that I have this sort of, you know, arcane kind of a uh, knowledge when when it comes to like defining art appropriately, knowing how to differentiate good from bad, right? Like that's that's very satisfying, right? So, th- the, uh, uh, th- this th- this uh, uh, desire to gatekeep, which is kind of you know everywhere and pretty much in everything. Um, you know, mm-hmm. is, is that is that you know the the uh, being overly righteous? You know, is it is it simply the fact that you know, as we said earlier about about this book, um, uh, that that you know, any one person is always limited by their age right by where they uh were born right what what time period they were born in like any wisdom even if it's like supreme wisdom is going to be limited in that regard um so there's always a danger in being too too righteous there's a there's a danger in miscalculating whether or not you could even get people you know on board for this kind of like army that you're trying to recruit for whatever cause, secular or religious, that you know you're you're trying to uh, get get on your side. Like, is that is that the admonition? Um, because, you know, it's just interesting to, to hear something about being overly righteous, you know, in the context of the Bible, given that, you know, the Bible gives you so much ammunition for being righteous, right? Um, to the mm-hmm. point of like, in some cases, like genocide, to the point of, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, God justifying all, all manner of, uh, uh, grisly, uh, occurrences, um, you know, in, in, uh, the kind of like, I guess uh, mythology of the bible um, but you know like also like neither make thyself overwise why shouldest thou destroy thyself thyself right there is you know there there is this kind of danger there and the same way that you know there there is a man here that prolonged with his life and his w- wickedness right evil can very easily have this kind of a, a effect where it increases your lifespan, right? If you're willing to be an evil per- evil person, um, you have a kind of like competitive edge, don't you, right? Because most people mm-hmm. are not willing to be evil. Those that are, they, they have a competitive edge in, in in this kind of, you know, marketplace of, of organisms.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no question. And the, the whole self-righteousness idea in excess does come back around in the bible you know for anyone who's not familiar jesus gives a lot of retorts to to people uh, during you know the books where he's present in the bible uh, to anyone who thinks that they've got more of a a sense really to the to the tune of how righteous to be and that they are the gatekeepers of those things people like the pharisees in the new testament And, uh, and gives these kind of, um, you know, these pushbacks. So we find that here too, but it is still, especially in the old Testament, uh, an odd sentiment and thing to hear Mm -hmm. when for the most part, everything else is geared toward maximal righteousness, maximal rightness with God and, and everything else. Yeah. I was looking uh, looking at some of these other verses in seven just to see if there's anything else that I had. But I, I think a, a lot of it does start to get into a bit of rehash of some earlier ideas. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt the same way about eight. I didn't have any really notable notes on eight. Uh, I've got some things on nine, but any... I, 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 I
0: have... Um, oh, no, no. Eight is just number eight in terms of uh, the listing. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm going into nine. Okay, going on. Um, you, you want to start with nine?
1: Sure. So, one of the things I highlighted is in chapter nine, verse ten. This is what it says: "Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest." So, to me, this represented a little bit of a turning from some of the earlier sentiments. All of a sudden, now there's this this command or this encouragement to find what you can do and do it as mightily as possible. And I, I I think that's a sentiment you and I would both agree with, Um, you know, you can't do anything when you're dead and you're going to be dead a really long time. So relating back again to some of the things we talked about in artifact, number one and self-actualization and purpose, Uh, This is it's kind of that verse to me is a little bit of a breath of fresh air almost because it comes after some pretty heavy in chapter seven and eight just continued listing of how many things are worthless and meaningless uh, in in his existence here but uh, this this one stands out and then in verse 11 immediately following that there's also This interesting sentiment. So this is verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Mm so again really really interesting there's nothing else quite like this that i recall from the bible where uh, that final bit of words there but time and chance happeneth to them all again almost just kind of cutting god out of the equation and there's no mention there of god's will will be done in your life you can try your best strive your utmost and hopefully something good comes of it but in the end don't worry because god has your back anyway and you he'll save you and take you on, et cetera, et cetera. There's just this, this tidy little, Hey, don't, don't get too wrapped up in anything that's going on because you might just luck might just beat you. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's such a unique sentiment um, to, to, to kind of express that maybe God can't just control and orchestrate absolutely everything. Perhaps blind chance has a role to play
0: you know it's also like a um a critique of like you know even people that think that they're like uh smart or wise in some way like i get the sense of so many people they just they just like eventually just like collapse into this fucking like bland mush of like popularity contest you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um when in reality you know uh the race is not to the swift right like the battle is not to the strong, right? This is um, uh, like y- you will not necessarily be compensated for the good that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, in many cases, you will be punished for the good that you do. That's just reality. Yeah. Uh, and, and and what is popular, uh, you know, in, in most cases, with the exception of like, I guess, certain situations and edge cases and like <sighs> biological imperatives that make it so. Um, You know, uh, what is popular is really not a good indication of anything at all. Like what is popular is simply an indication of what can allow things to sort of run in a generic sense, like smoothly. You know what I mean?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, again, just highlighting for for, uh, listeners and watchers, good little bits of writing. So, chapter 10, verse 1 with an interesting image here, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. So in a way, almost like a cliched sentiment, like don't don't sour your reputation, your lifelong reputation with you know a minute or two of indiscretion, which is mm-hmm. something we've all heard plenty of times. But that opening of that line, Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor is, uh, is, is a nice little poetic line there. So that was the main thing I had highlighted from 10. Uh, I think, again, you know, a, a lot of rehashing of some of the earlier uh, bits. Even verse 20 has some kind of odd uh, advice about like not cursing the king or the rich in public or in private because birds will come and, and chirp it to the air something something that effect for a bird of the air shall carry the voice and that which hath wings shall tell the matter yeah. uh, so just this another expression of this whole sentiment like don't yeah. don't use your voice to say anything and let nature or god or whoever sort it out
0: yeah i i, I would uh um uh i would uh, at least hope to interpret the, the 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 opening verse there in chapter 10 as a kind of um not even so much like a, like, uh, I can't even tell if it's a prescriptive judgment. Like, is it, is it, t- is it telling you like, don't in fact, uh, your, your reputation with a moment of indiscretion, uh, or is it simply a description of how things are? Because, you know, that is how things are, right? Like it, mm-hmm. if, if you do, if you do something that's like out of either the norm for yourself or, just kind of a uh, uh, bad, like, you know, that, that could so easily overtake uh, people's conceptions of who you really are. And, you know, I, I just find that kind of, you know, kind of a uh, uh, toxic, there's this kind of, you know, and you see this, especially now, right. In the modern world, you see this in, in, the, in the fucking like Twitter universe where um, uh, we're like, you know, essentially there's this tension between telling people you know there is such a thing as propriety in behavior there is such a thing as good and bad no it's not just all morally relative but if in fact you have ever engaged in this kind of behavior we're going to completely throw you out there is no redemption right there is mm-hmm. no forgiveness but um uh you know i i i would hope that this is just like a a, desc- a descriptive verse right hmm
1: sure yeah. I hadn't read it that way initially, but, uh, I can, I can agree with you there. Yeah. Go ahead with 11. Cause I, I didn't have much written down for 11.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's just a two, two verses, um, uh, nine and 10 rejoice. O young man in thy youth and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Um, I, I, I kind of found it hard uh, to interpret this a little bit because, you know, at the beginning, uh, sorrow is treated with respect. Um, yeah. You know, J- J- in the Jeffers poem, Joy, uh, Joy um, he says, uh, joy is not great right uh, uh, sorrow is uh, um, you know joy is is better than sorrow uh, here you know there's a sense that sorrow is in fact objectively good right same thing with the, the, the county colon uh, poem uh, that ends for wisdom cometh with the years uh, the barren days come to I think that's what it is Mm -hmm. um i think for wisdom comes through the years the barren days come to i maybe maybe slightly different but it's something like that uh uh you know sorrow you know like like if you think of like all the kinds of emotions that you feel if you must feel emotions deeply um uh sorrow has a kind of like uh with the exception of like you know crippling depression or something sorrow has a kind of revitalize and kind of feel right. Um, it, it gives you first like time to just uh, uh, mope and conserve energy. And then it gives you an opportunity to say, you know, I, I don't want to feel this way. So what can I do to, to avert this? And mm-hmm. wisdom, wisdom provides this because, you know, wisdom gives you a sense of what life is really like. And what life is really like is very different from the images that you would have, you know, when you're a child um it's you know like life never you know turns out as you expect it obviously uh but but here you know uh, sorrow is 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 something to be removed right um uh like like uh uh uh, uh, so like you rejoice as a young person in this kind of like i guess delusion under the interpretations of the author uh but now as an adult remove sorrow from thy heart um like how how would you how would you like uh sort of um like deal with that kind of disconnect like from the beginning of the book up to here and also just like even taking it on its own terms now without without even reference to the beginning
1: yeah so so first of all it definitely is a disconnect because as you said and maybe we even read this in one or two of the verses but in particular there's a verse earlier on in the book where it says the 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 heart of the wise is in the house of sorrow Mm -hmm. and the heart of the foolish is in the house of mirth Mm -hmm. and goes on in in subsequent verses to basically praise the former. So seeing some value in the sorrowful take at times on life. And then, yeah, here all, all of a sudden we have yet another contradiction where it's telling you to, to remove sorrow in your later years. And, you know, I just, I, I would, I guess, overall tend to disagree with that. I agree with you that, uh, that sorrow has this utility and this important role to play both, uh, I think, in like potent doses at, in certain times in life when peak negative things might happen to you, uh, commonly called a trough, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and And then, but also I think in a sense, This sense that, like, generally having a a bit more of a sorrowful uh, disposition and approach to adult life, I I do think tends to come along with people, at least in my own life, and you might agree or disagree, but but people who tend to be wiser, right? So these more, uh, like, perpetually optimistic Pollyanna type people, that just assume and say to themselves and others that everything will always work out for the best or, or whatever. It's like, what does that even mean? You know, what are you talking about? How would that practically come about? Uh, there are these issues, these things that we need to address either as individuals or as a collective. And yeah, you can't wallow in sorrow all the time or you'll never take a the next step and make an effort yeah. to improve that situation. But I think in general, just having a tendency more toward that uh, in in your decision-making and in your outlook on life uh, probably tends to serve people better, especially as adults. Uh, So that, yeah, that's my take on it. So it's an interesting little Mm -hmm. passage there.
0: Yeah. um, This sort of reminds me of this. uh, 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 Maybe you could comment on this. I've always been like a very kind of like a upbeat optimistic person from like my teenage years onwards i guess uh but you know as i've uh hit uh after i hit 30 uh i definitely became in some respects more sorrowful and 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 melancholy i'm not sure if this is just like you know just like peaks you know and chosen in life versus something else you know perhaps it's probably what it is like I don't think uh I, I've changed too much, but I've always been despite like being like a a pretty happy person, I've always been so moved and attached to like melancholy. you know what I mean mm-hmm. I fucking i I, I love like just just dark fucking weather. my favorite weather if it's like if it's like if it's so cloudy that it's black outside windy as hell but no rain right because i want to take a walk i don't want to be disturbed i don't want to have extra unnecessary things on my body uh but i love that melancholy when i first got into poetry as a kid uh i always gravitated towards the most melancholy poetry i gravitated towards like kind of like the grimmer poems from county colin grimmer poems of like theological poetry more broadly. I loved like, you know, uh, work by Philip Larkin. And I've always wondered why, because, um, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm a very, well, maybe not so much anymore, uh, but, you know, I guess I used to be a very kind of nostalgic person. And uh, like, I've always loved melancholy. And uh, I, I I can't say that I, uh, times when I've actually felt melancholy as opposed to it just being this, abstraction that i would look at and appreciate and love um I, I i can't even say that melancholy itself has uh has has really made me feel be- like it feels weird to say but like you know you know i'm not have you I, I, have you ever seen the killing of a chinese bookie yeah yeah when when ben says you know i'm only happy when i'm angry when i'm sad you know like that's that you know mm-hmm. that's um, uh, like that's 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 sort of been you know uh, uh, my feeling and you know like w- when I when I read something like this you know remove sorrow from your heart if I've become kind of like less melancholy in some respects or in this nostalgic you know does it make sense that now he says you know that childhood is vanity as an adult do not have sorrow in your heart remove that you know like you know is is there something to it or, or you know may, maybe you have like a different. Uh, you, you seem to agree when I said that you, know, like you, just, you just love melancholy. Like maybe, maybe you could comment, comment on that.
1: Yeah, sure. So you and I share that in common. And my, my favorite weather, if we just want to give those examples, would be probably two different types. Number one is deep dark of winter when it's snowing outside. And I used to love, even as a child, just bundling up and going outside to go for a walk around yeah. my neighborhood or or like on my parents' property in the right. woods with just gentle snow coming down at, at twilight, you know, it's just this cold to most people, cold, bleak, maybe kind of miserable thing. A lot of people think snow is beautiful, of course, but, but that particular hour was mm-hmm. really important to me as well. Um, you know, as my favorite and, and, and I, I do like rainy weather. I'm with you on like the dark, stormy, cloudy look, but I, I kind of like a little bit of rain and I'll usually, those are my favorite times to be inside and listening to melancholy music or reading or writing uh, or whatever. But uh, what what, what about, what about if you're outside? Because I I don't mind
0: rain when I'm inside, but I, I, you know, I take like multi-hour walks all the time. I don't want to deal with umbrellas and shit like that. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, 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 so that, that would really be it. And also there's something special about deep, dark cloud cover that does not, culminate in rain right there's something Mm -hmm. special about that in the same way that you would appreciate like fog and mist because it's not that common
1: right yeah sure so so i I don't mind you know walking in the rain for a while um but but i i can see where you're coming from but i will say also since moving here to the bay area the fog and mist that comes pretty consistently is my favorite you know thing about the weather patterns here so i i enjoy that um, and I, I just, I guess I always felt like it adds, whether it's the snow, the dark skies, the rain, the mist, it just adds this element of drama. It mm-hmm. makes your whole uh, life in that moment feel kind of cinematic in a way. But um, certainly, like you said, with with poems and poetry, like my favorite, you know, the, a lot of them are great poets and, and poems, but my favorites also tend to be, um, you know, the, the darker, more melancholic, you know, people like Weldon Keys or, or even Wallace Stevens. Um, Jeffers is certainly up there and a lot of his Mm -hmm. stuff feels more, you know, just like bleak in the face of, of nature. Um, my, you know, my music choices too, like you and I've talked about Elliot Smith before. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's still absolutely a favorite and very few of his songs could, could be considered, uh, you know, in any way uplifting or happy, but Mm -hmm. still one of my favorites. So, uh, yeah, that, that attitude definitely pervades. And I think that, um, for, for me, it's it's just the lens through which I prefer to see the world, or maybe not even prefer, I just naturally do mm-hmm. a lot of the time. And so, yeah, a command to remove that, um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to disobey on that one. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, I think, let me just review my notes real quick, uh, but, but we could probably go there. You know, verses 2 through 7 are pretty heavily poetic and and they deal with sort of the coming of God back to back to earth in these grand sweeping pronouncements. Uh, They're, they're interesting and it's just worth a read. I I won't take the time to read all the way through it, but uh, you know, basically the sum up is still chapter 12 verse 8 vanity of vanities say if the preacher all is vanity and then we click into 9 through 14 to wrap it up here so if, if you want to read those and then maybe we can open yeah. a little bit
0: um and moreover because the preacher was wise he still taught the people knowledge yeah he have good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs the preacher sought to find out acceptable words And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these, my son, be admonished of making many books. There is no end and much study is awareness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And that's how the chapter ends. Yeah. And, and by the way, so, so, so chapter 12 is, uh, is the, uh, like there, there's, they they think uh, uh, the God stuff was sort of tacked on in earlier chapters, but, the entire chapter, um, 12, uh, is seen as this like epilogue that was just made completely after the fact. And it just mm-hmm. sort of does feel that way. I mean, essentially it's like, you know, although God is obviously throughout the book, like, uh, it, it, it really comes back in full force and almost like un, uh, unnecessarily, you, you definitely feel like structurally that, it is not on the one hand sort of necessary now because all this god stuff was brought up at the beginning um but it, it's not necessarily the most satisfying conclusion right because of that perhaps yeah
1: yeah agreed it, uh, especially verses 13 and 14 where it's, it's this odd summation of everything that came before that's completely divorced from what you've read up until that point yeah. but Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, if we take all of chapter 12 as an add on later, it does still read strangely. And I think you and I would agree it would have been much more interesting for, you know, chapter 11, verse 10, therefore remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh for childhood and youth or vanity would be a much more interesting and open ended way to wrap up the book, maybe with a another final verse or two if the author wanted to but in general to strong arm this this summary with with god you know so prominent in it's kind of awkward and uh, serves to to undermine a lot of what came before
0: um w- one thing that this uh, just reminded me i was as a reading i just pulled it up um that line uh at um was it Uh, line 12 and further by these my son be admonished of making many books there is no end and much study is awareness of the flesh Uh, that line of making many books there is no end it was actually used uh, I think to better effect by one one of my favorite poems and we talked about this uh, before uh elizabeth barrett browning's um 1800s uh novel um in verse aurora lee it starts out uh, actually with the line not not of making many books there is no end it's of writing many books there is no end mm-hmm. and i who have written much in prose and verse for others uses will write now for mine will write my story for my better self as when you paint your portrait for a friend who keeps it in a drawer and looks at it long after he has ceased to love you just to hold together what he was and is, you know, and I think this is just like a perfect kind of conclusion to, to this uh, book because um, you know, here's his book talking about labor by the end of it. It's, it's, it's ready to dismiss it outright. Here is uh, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning in Aurora Lee, saying the exact opposite. She says right, right off the bat, writing many books, there is no end. Writing and art, right, this is an endless kind of process. Um, and and uh, uh, you will do it, right? You will do it as a kind of uh, ecclesiastical labor, right? Who have written much in prose and verse for others' uses, right? You are engaging these labors not for yourself, And finally, here she's saying she's doing it for herself. Of course, that also is vanity, right? This book is not ultimately for herself, even if she says it it is, you know, it it is sort of, you know, uh, uh, I guess about her personal predilections and and dispositions and so on and so forth. But, you know, clearly it is uh, an excellent, uh, at minimum uh, 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 work, right? It is uh, probably uh, one of the best novels of of the 19th century. Um, and other people could have a utility from it. And, you know, I said earlier about, you know, how Ecclesiastes must have influenced other works. Well, you know, here's one example. And this is, and this is a greater work, right, than Ecclesiastes, right? Rorally could not have been possible, obviously, um, you know, back
1: then in, right. in, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that sums it all up well. And any other just general points that we were going to touch on, from my notes, I think we have as we've gone along here. So really the final thing that I put down and that I asked as a a question that I I think we agree on the answer, but uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. So just is Ecclesiastes good as a standalone work of art? If it were not part of the Bible and just its own little book of 12 poems or perhaps one full length poem, what would we think and how would we evaluate it?
0: Um, I, I would answer in the following way, just, just like, you know, anytime they talk about, uh, works of art, you know, prior to, you know, a certain year, let's say there's always going to be an asterisk to it. Right. Um, you know, Ecclesiastes, uh, it, it, okay. So it definitely has great passages, Mm -hmm. Right. It has great lines that that will stand, you know, on par with any modern novel. Uh, As a totality, um, you know, the the, the fact that, you know, arts years ago uh, were taken as a kind of like, you know, extension of religion and worship um once you uh, sort of assume that this is the function you're going to put yourself in positions where well now we have to tack god into it so um you know uh, the addition of that final chapter is uh, even if it's not like bad writing it's a flaw in some way um uh, the fact that the ambiguities uh, uh exist without a being resolved and b not even giving you the, the the lack of resolution is not that important, but the second part is more important. That second part is there's a lack of resolution without also giving you a sense really of where the writer or the narrator stands. Right. Correct. And, and that, that is objectively a problem. You, you, you have to know where someone truly stands and uh, you know, in many cases, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's just wobbly, you know, uh, throughout the text, right? And, you know, we're saying this even if this is, you know, uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, the, uh, the best book in the Bible, right? Maybe maybe the book of Job is better. I don't know. I, I haven't uh, read Job in, you know, maybe like 10 years, so I can't answer that question uh, off, off, off the top of my head. But, um, uh, you know, a- I feel like any artwork you know, of uh, uh, an old enough vintage is always going to have like a set of asterisks, right? Because it's, you know, just like s- the, the Solomon character thinks that he's engaging in art and genuine labor by building some fucking houses, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, <laughs> right. th- th- that's always going to be the asterisk there. Yeah, so, so that's my take is if we go ahead and just grant the usual asterisks that we need to, Still a, a good standalone work of art. It mm-hmm. would hold up today if, if you just received it as a, a little chapbook of poems unto itself. It would have, yeah, some contradictions, but certainly some great lines, a lot of mystery and ambiguity, uh, some, some passages that do make you put the book down to pause and reflect and, and think through them more deeply. It does demand rereading. And I think it rewards some rereading mm-hmm. as you go along. Uh, again, not not every piece, but but certain pieces. So I, I, I think we would finish by recommending that people give it a read, even if mm-hmm. you're completely non-religious and never have been, uh, and it still has merit on its own. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, twenty or so pages. Um, yeah, it's short.
0: definitely worth, worth the read. Think about what you would normally do. You'd like fuck around on your phone for like (laughs) an hour. And then you're like, holy fuck, what did I just do? Uh, you could have read Ecclesiastes. Um, uh, so the next part is we, we want to do the, um, we want to do the, the painting, uh, Mm -hmm. the, um, return the prodigal son by Rembrandt. Uh, I think one of his, uh, uh, great paintings, um mm-hmm. and it, it's interesting to to view it in light of uh the actual like biblical story right which is in which is in uh luke so this is now we're moving to the the new testament um because you know it, it's, it's it's interesting in the sense that when uh you know when people uh think of um religious painting right or anything that's like you know based on religion based on a parable based on whatever uh it's all too easy to say okay i'm gonna like reinterpret this but not really reinterpret it and i'm simply going to give you in a prosaic sense what the parable entails like what it meant you know purely in plot or even like in narrative you know that's always insufficient right if you're going to take a biblical biblical story you're going to have to do something with it right um and and i think rembrandt does it uh really well in that painting so uh, maybe you could do the 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 Screen share since I don't I don't have that painting up on my screen. Sure, um, I've well, got it. Yeah, so so actually, uh, yeah, like like let's pull it up and uh, I, I'm a, as we pull it up, I'm going to read the uh, the parable from from Luke.
1: All right. So hopefully, everyone watching would now be able to see the Rembrandt painting there, and this is pretty much as large as I can make it on my screen. So
0: I think that's that's good enough. Okay. Um, so as you're, uh, just looking at the painting and, and thinking about, uh, what you see there, um, this is the parable that it's, uh, based on. It's uh, Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 32. Uh, and he said, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falleth, falleth to me And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to be merry now his elder son was in the field and as he came and drew nigh to the house he heard music and dancing And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, thy brother is come and thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and he would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again. And was lost and is found. So, um, I enemy, mean, we could continue talking with the, with the screen share. I, f- I find it interesting because like the parable as it's written, right? Um, it, lit- like, it literally can't be this depiction that we see uh, on, on the screen, right? Because, um, you know, here, like, uh, you know, we have the father running to the son uh, I don't think in the situation, the father ran to the son. In fact, it looks like the, like the exact opposite. It looks like the fa- like the son ran to the father. And you have evidence of this. Like you see that little shoe at the bottom. Uh-huh. Um, that, that's such a marvel- marvelous little touch, right? Like you see in the fact that the shoe has come off and the other shoe has not. You know, it just must have slipped off as he was kneeling, right? Maybe out of excitement, maybe for some other reason. Uh, 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 the, the other shoe uh, stayed on. So like you have the tension, right? You have like, you know, you have the motion of the image before, you know, the image that's actually in front of you, right? You have this kind of cinematic scope, right? The cinematic quality. Um, that, you know, a a great painter is able to produce, right? Um, And, you know, you you think it's like a throwaway little detail, but it's not like, you know, that that tension, it's important for this moment, right? There was, you can imagine, you know, a kind of, you know, a riot of motion before we get to this point. The only evidence that you have for that riot of motion comes from the slipper that's been uh, thrown off. Um, I have more things to say, but I, I've, I've, I've talked enough. So, um, I guess like,
1: you know, whatever. Yeah. Have. Uh, yeah, definitely. The, the, the shoe is a highly important detail, probably the most important individual detail in the whole piece. It also looks as though maybe like the, the father and whoever else is around him, you know, we don't know exactly who these characters are um you know maybe we're assuming one or two of them are servants but there's this pretty royally clad figure looks similar to the father's robes on the right hand side which maybe is the elder son uh if you know feel free to say but i'm not sure
0: yeah i mean Um, they they have they have guesses right like they say for example i think they're saying uh that this might be like a tax collector but you know whenever people say stuff like that there's, there's no reason like why would you make that assumption right that's kind of um Yeah, it's 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 it's. uh, I mean, it could be. It could be the. It could be uh the um elder brother, right? He 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 does look younger than the father, right? Uh, I'm not exactly. uh, I don't think Jesus in this parable says exactly how big the age differential is, Um, so. You know, we just have like a, a younger and older uh, brother, uh, you know, it could be that, you know, and if it is the, if it is the brother, uh, number one, like it does change just some of what's happening in the parable, because uh, you don't see the kind of uh, action that the parable uh, 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 actually states, like in the words. Um, and also you like, you don't get the sense, like if this is in fact the brother, you don't get the sense that this is a, anyway, anyway I'm just. I'm, I'm talking again. You were in the middle of something. I need to,
1: I need to stop. Yeah, you, uh, save that thought. Hopefully we can come back to it. But yeah, but so, so my thought was just going to be that uh, for this interpretation, let's say that it is the elder brother. Yeah. And, and therefore, once again, it's a really interesting narrative change on Rembrandt's part because he's here peacefully watching over this embrace of the father for the younger son. And perhaps, I mean, he's described as angry and upset in the parable itself and and maybe he does still harness those emotions but here at least he's uh, you know he's looking more pensive and reflective maybe he's even at this moment uh, you know interpreting what all of this might mean and trying to absorb some kind of life lesson from his father or maybe he still vehemently mm-hmm. disagrees with what his father's doing here and is just uh you know pitying his younger brother we we don't really know but um Anyway, the the ambiguity of that is kind of interesting, and so I think also it's just important that uh, Rembrandt chooses this moment of the parable, like you said, where things have calmed down a little bit from the initial like running in of the younger brother and, and maybe a bit of like a frenzied attitude, and even the father's excitement at that. But here, the father is still looking like bitter or disappointed or, or sorrowful, maybe to use our theme from Ecclesiastes, you know, and it looks like he's kind of caught up in a number of different emotions now that this moment has actually arrived and he's holding his son. He seems conflicted maybe between, you know, pleasure at that, but also perhaps even wondering if he's doing the right thing by welcoming him back here. Now, I mean, obviously in a broader sense, the, the meaning of the parable is pretty straightforward in terms of what Jesus means with, you know, God giving forgiveness and redemption to people who don't deserve it but um anyway and, and it's just a gorgeous painting too you know mm-hmm. as, as a side note i mean on a technical level classic rembrandt stuff with the chiaroscuro it's very deep and intense here looks like maybe there's a doorway that the younger son came through that's mm-hmm. casting light into this room um but uh but just beautiful beautiful everything you know in terms of the presentation as well
0: and and like the, the like the most interesting part of uh, these situations would, would be the um uh like would be like the after effect, like it would be the emotion, right? Uh mm-hmm. it, it, it it would not be like the frenzy and the excitement, like the the, the thing, like the Jeffers would say, like what is, where would the greatness reside? you know it would be in the piece right the after mm-hmm. effect right the, the piece that's emerging here where people you know they, they none of their mouths look like they're moving right they're now mm-hmm. just in thought right there is at, at a certain point not enough to uh, 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 not enough words to go around there's nothing to say mm-hmm. um, and if you if you would scroll up again a little bit um, uh, one thing that I o- often thought about this painting was how, uh, you know, uh, it, what the, the upper right portion of, of, uh, the canvas, right. Um, like, and I, I this is what I, I tweeted something to, to this effect when I first tweeted out this painting. Um, like if you just magnify that portion of the, of the painting, right. And you just blow it up, right. You blow it up and you zoom into it. And you sort of say, you know, this is my Abex painting. Like, it's just worthless, right? It it doesn't mean anything, right? Um, uh, But in context of what's actually happening, we don't see um, uh, any kind of like, uh, uh, you know, anything that that would be indicative of like uh, wealth. We don't see, you know, uh, uh, finely cut walls. Uh, We don't see anything except this like, uh, amorphous uh, uh, nothingness that honestly, to me, it just looks like what we, we in the modern age think of as thought bubbles, right? Because the emphasis is, is on what are these people thinking, right? These are all of their like little abstractions, right? These, these are all their little thoughts, uh, perhaps like cropping up, right? So if you interpret this essentially as thought bubbles, you know, this works as an abstraction far better than a, a totally disconnected kind of abstraction you know meaning you know, like disembodied and disconnected from the real world right like like you actually have something going on here and you could say that you know there is there's is something you know uh, emerging here that 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 uh th- uh, uh, uh this part, part of the painting is is adding to
1: yeah all good comments uh, i'll scroll down here because i think and this sort of gets to your point a little bit further, or maybe it's on this page here, um, right here. This zoom in on the father's mm-hmm. face and the technique, right? So again, like if I zoom and we get real tight in there, and it starts to look abax mm-hmm. again, right? And Rembrandt in his later style this is something he's very much praised for to this day. Is he's more frenzied hurried brush strokes and laying the paint on thick and not going for that hyper glossed realism, you know, mm-hmm. he, he kind of ushered in or helped usher in some of this more sketchy kind of style. But, uh, but here, I mean, still this eye alone, like there, when you really look at it, there's not that many strokes almost or, or something mm-hmm. hardly any detail yet. it still conveys this expression and this emotion and it's this odd Uh, You know, just creates, again, some ambiguity, like this little turn of the eye to the side while the father is embracing the son. What what could that mean?
0: You you can't say, you can't definitively say, oh, this is clearly, you can't do that, right? No. no. Um, uh, But but you can also say the following. It is clearly an indication of some kind of thought, some kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. You don't have to know what it is. Like, you know the story, right? You know the story behind it. This does not have to be a literal interpretation of the story, simply because you have that skeleton in there. This is where you know Rembrandt is allowing uh, uh the viewer to actually do some work right this is This is now your turn to make these kinds of judgment calls
1: yeah exactly right, and a great artist doing doing what they do um extremely well and so Yeah, nice, nice palate cleanser, as you phrased it. uh, After going pretty in depth on Ecclesiastes, I have a couple little, uh, like surprise ending pieces here to wrap this up. Okay, uh, with with some poems actually that I kind of thought of while Mm -hmm. I was reading Ecclesiastes. Uh, I don't know if you had anything extra before we maybe wrap up this segment.
0: No, because I actually have something extra for the after dark, which will be uh, <laughs> explosive, explosive and high, highly controversial and totally unexpected.
1: Okay. Well, I, I don't have anything extra for that section. So perfect. Uh, you can take that. I'll take this. So um, let me just get back out of the screen share here and come back to our view. Okay. So just two two quick poems. So um, you now it, it's interesting that you mentioned County Cullen unprompted by me i'm not surprised that you did but uh you know there are a number of cullen poems that i think maybe we could have picked from he was a religious person uh you know Mm -hmm. throughout his whole life but similar to ecclesiastes never uh never was like totally sure of himself and of Mm -hmm. his faith and, and kind of cast interesting doubts sometimes at god and at himself and his relation to god and and there's a lot of wonderful poems of his that do that uh, you have a great analysis of his poem, Heritage, from your Ideas on Ideas site. But uh, this is just a quick one that I thought I would read. Uh, this is from County Collins Collected Poems. So this one's called God's. I fast and pray and go to church and put my penny in. But God's not fooled by such slight tricks. And I'm not saved from sin. I cannot hide from him the gods that revel in my heart nor can I find an easy word to tell them to depart. God's alabaster turrets gleam too high for me to win unless he turns his face and lets me bring my own gods in. And just uh, a a kind of off-putting take in a way on County Cullen having his own gods and, and needing to bring those along still, even if he's going to pledge allegiance and devotion to the Christian God. Yeah. And some question marks about doing what God asks of him, putting his penny in, but he's still not cleansed of sin and and uh, these kind of things. So that was one. And then the other one is Robert. Well, j- 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 yeah, just to comment on that, like, um, yeah. you yeah, know, just connecting that with heritage, like, you know,
0: a c- couple ways that we could discuss, like the gods that he's talking about here is, number one, it could be as simple as like an heritage when he's saying, you know, my native gods are actually, you know, the African pagan gods. And, uh, you know, am I, you know, am I betraying God for either thinking of them or am I betraying my heritage for uh, thinking of the Christian God? So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the other thing is, you know, the, the gods inside you could be anything that you have this like, you know ideological uh, commitment to any zealotry towards um and you know like we talked about earlier like we
1: we were just as zealous as we were you know as as when we were religious right could even mean yeah exactly his yeah. his propensity for poetry yeah and being an artist and needing to bring that along so so that was one and then uh, another short one here this is from robinson jeffers and speaks a bit to what we talked about early in ecclesiastes with that sort of defeatist attitude in a way uh, with everything being meaningless and, and what to do it for, but also still retaining a sense of awe and wonder at the world around you. So to the stone cutters. Stone cutters fighting time with marble, you four defeated challengers of oblivion, eat cynical earnings, knowing rock splits, records fall down, the square limbed Roman letters scale in the thaws, wear in the rain. The poet as well builds his monument mockingly for man will be blotted out the blithe earth die the brave sun die blind and blackened to the heart yet stones have stood for a thousand years and pained thoughts found the honey of peace in old poems yeah uh, I, I did not know the first poem uh
0: maybe it's a new one from the, the new county cole collection but uh, I, yeah, I've, I've heard this one before, and yeah, I mean, um, and, you know, it's interesting because Jeffers ha- had this perspective, uh, and, you know, it makes me wonder, like, so, like, you know, the one hand, he, 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 he's one of these people that believes that everything more or less turns to dust, uh, but, you know, he, he kind of, you know, he, he spent his whole life writing, like, a lot of poetry, right, thousands of pages of poetry, Mm -hmm. um and you know it it just makes me wonder like did he interpret his life in in the sense that he would interpret the life of an animal right animals do what they do and then they die uh people do what they do and what they die and in his case what people do uh is to write poetry right because that that was the function just like an animal's function might be something totally prosaic and different um this is Uh, His function within the limits of uh, what 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 uh, his culture is, right? What 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 his, you know, probable uh, course of actions might be
1: Right and and a little bit of a a sly dig there and similar to the themes in Ecclesiastes We talked about where he writes this poem to the stonecutters but essentially says that what they've built won't last but in that final line that people still find the honey of peace in old poems, so it's it's writing it's poetry it's art that has this ability to endure and um so yeah i thought those and there's plenty of others we you know could have looked at and picked but those both seemed applicable and i, I read yeah. them both fairly recently yeah so.
0: honestly um the best argument against uh all the uh naysaying and all the uh defeatist attitudes uh and all the melancholy in Ecclesiastes is Ecclesiastes, right? Like it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's kind of like its own proof against itself. Subverts you know? itself. Yeah. That, 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 and you know, uh, th- that's just uh, the interesting, uh, part of all of it. Um, you know, in the same way that, that people that, that make all their, uh, uh clever arguments about, uh, the subjectivity in the arts, you know, uh, the, the, the biggest and best argument against all that is just observe their actual behavior uh, after they're done with their abstract discussions and after they're done with their words. Right. Um, you know, a, a, a fool is known by a multitude of words. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So wrap it up here and uh, we will see everybody.